Hey everyone, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Eric Kaysen. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Robert. Excited to be here, and uh, we always have excellent conversations. So I'm happy to see where it's going to go. Likewise, I am quite excited about this, and I was privileged to catch up on some of your writing that we've been talking about for some time in preparation for this. And man, it's really good. You've got quite the gift. And I'd like to just open with an excerpt. And we're today, initially, we'll be focusing on your piece, Crypto, Truth, and Power, Crypto Sovereignty. And you open with this line. It says, quote, I want to start from the hypothesis that Bitcoin and crypto assets are explicit military assets of war. The military value of crypto assets and their non-physical nature comes a priori to the economic value, to their economic value, pardon. By focusing on the military value of crypto assets from a topology of total war, the true economic value of crypto assets presents themselves. Quite the strong opening line. Um, Could you unpack that a little bit for us, please? Sure. I'm going to pull it up in front of me so I have it. So essentially, you know, one of my hypotheses from the very beginning is that because of the cryptography that's baked into baked into Bitcoin and widerly crypto assets, uh, they're explicitly assets of military war. And so if we start kind of thinking in terms of, let's say, you know, the state does make Bitcoin illegal, that uh, all crypto assets need to be crushed out and the state hunts people down. Um, and I think this term crypto is very important for this because, uh, first of all, this word means secret. And second of all, with the wideness that the idea of crypto has captured all of the crypto economy, as you and I both know, most of this garbage is not actually cryptographically hardened in any meaningful way. It would be pretty easy to mount a number of attacks on this stuff. Uh, and so ultimately, kind of through this military lens, I believe that we could really call Bitcoin the only true hardened crypto asset that actually exists. There might be a few others, but I, I'm not terribly interested in them. Mm-hmm. And I think taking a step back and really trying to analyze it from this idea of military and total war, first of all, it actually opens us up to a much wider idea of where its true value comes in as being able to secure it in a military sense of the word. Because I think that uh, essentially where we're going in the world today, uh, and particularly with a lot of the dialogue going on in the crypto sphere, uh, I'm I'm very concerned that it is going to escalate to this place, which is why uh, my initial reading an essay here, I think, is of particular importance. Because if we start from this hypothesis that it is a military asset of war, we're looking at it from a very different angle that I think is extremely important. That kind of gets down to the crux of uh, what many have labeled as being Bitcoin maximalism, when I actually think it's it's taking the, the truest and the most firm view of this idea of it being a, a, a military asset used under terms of war. Interesting. Yeah. And the I think there's a this will come up in the next excerpt, but there's this deeper thesis here that we're always effectively at war in some way, right? Um, and I guess this is a testament to the Darwinian nature of reality to some extent. Like we're constantly, life is a struggle, basically, right? And this sort of seems to parallel 
a couple of other conversations I've had. One is, I don't know if you've seen Jason Lowry on Twitter. Um, I have seen Jason, yeah. So he's the MIT guy that's kind of advancing the thesis that Sailor put forward in the Sailor series, which was that, you know, life is that which channels energy across space and time effectively. And that historically in, you know, meat space or analog physical reality, we always needed a specialist in violence or a specialist in the projection of political or martial force to secure property rights. But this, and your paper starts to go into transcending that, right? Like this has been like the alpha and omega of all human history, but in the power Mm -hmm. of Bitcoin or perhaps crypto more generally, we have this opportunity to actually transcend uh, this historic pattern. Yeah. And I mean, like that, that's a big chunk to bite off, you know, mm-hmm. to, to try to be like, look, we actually have these kind of powers that are like above and beyond the ability of any amount of physical violence to actually be able to open. Uh, and I think one of the things that the most important to understand is that uh, not only were these kind of thoughts unavailable, but until we had actually advanced computational science, uh, asymmetric cryptography to such a place of advancement that now we were dealing with, uh, you know, these mathematical theorems where we're talking about the, the numbers of atoms in the universe are the kind of numbers we're trying to guess. That was the only place that this language finally became available to us. And it was only through that same sort of physical theorem uh, of, you know, say, uh, of theoretical physics that are allowing for cryptography to operate on this scale that we actually were able to produce, you know, frankly, what I believe is this metaphysical object of scarcity that's of such great importance because it reorders the entirety of how we've involved society to this day. Because frankly, through statism, we are organized around practices of violence, even if they are discrete. Whereas this is an actual complete refusal to engage in that praxis of violence whatsoever. And it's very interesting because also on the back end, uh, you know, Bitcoin's POW energy usage, uh, there's this formula of energy that gets utilized that protects it. And that energy could be utilized towards violence in, in the exact same way, but mm-hmm. instead it's creating this shield almost. Yeah, that, that's directly to the point, uh, sort of the crux of that thesis is that, you know, again, Lowry advancing Sailor's thesis to some extent that we had to project energy to securing the chain of custody. But now we've, instead of doing this via war, politics and war, we now have this alternative channel, which is Bitcoin mining, right? We can expend energy in a, in a bloodless way towards the maintenance of uh, property, frankly. So it's a, the first property, right? We've created that's independent of violent force, but it still uses force. So there's some of this deep, when I say force, I mean like actual energy, thermodynamic, you know, we're using energy to, yes, to mine yes. Bitcoin. Um, and I think that that's such an important part because of uh, the word that I've had from Ambigan is inoperativity, mm. because through through using energy in this way, it's securing and ensuring that Bitcoin's core code, you know, the 21 million Bitcoin, it can never be augmented or changed. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, through the utilization and the choice of Bitcoin, there's this total refusal of the engagement towards fiat. 
Uh, and just to highlight the energy piece too, I think it's a, uh, you know, one great example is the the Battle of the Bulge during World War II. Like it came to a standstill because we, we couldn't source energy. Hmm. Like literally right. we ran out of gas on both sides and it became this war to try to get that energy. And to me, that has kind of one of those rhymosomes of importance to really understand that energy and war have this direct relationship that's extremely important that most people can't see. Yes. Bingo. And I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this lately is that, uh, you know, Oppenheimer distinguishes between, I think, the economic and political means of creating wealth, which is something you could, I think about it in this way that we're, the purpose of trade and innovation is for us to harness more energy, actually, right? We're trying to become more productive, which is to say more energy efficient, uh, higher returns on our labor, effectively. We're creating capital to amplify or magnify returns on labor. So that's great. We need that power. We need that uh, energy to flow forth. That's what makes us rich and improves the standard of living and all that. But we need it in a way that is resistant to asymmetric applications of willpower, such that one group can, mm. can steal that power from others or leverage that power over others. And we've, it's kind of been this back and forth across history, right? Or like we figure out innovations, but then we also use those innovations to go to war <laughs> and create political structures and uh, assert dominion over others. And then eventually uh, the oppression becomes too great and people throw off the yoke and we get kind of a decentralizing uh, ebb and flow. And it's just, Really interesting. So the political political nature of mankind got us to crypto, right? Even cryptography itself was born in war, I believe. Um, yeah, Kitschoff's pr principles, yeah. Yep. And now, I guess the to put a button on this opening at least, it's those that same political environment that has birthed this ultimate fruit of capitalism or whatever Bitcoin is that allows us to transcend politics. And I'm going to read another excerpt here. And this is a bit of a long one, but I think it's really potent. You wrote, quote, by understanding crypto as a munition of war and as a bulk word for the tactical organization of all things under the banner of assured privacy, we start to see the real power of crypto is not that of economics, but of war. When we start to investigate the very power slash knowledge relationship which cryptography engages within, we understand the kind of Athenian form of power crypto is to counter the brutish, brutishness of a statist Aries violence. It is this very relationship that also allows for us to uncover what the codification of law is in our society, as pointed out by Foucault. And Foucault wrote, the state consists in the codification of a whole number of power relations which render its functioning possible. And that revolution is a different type of codification of the same relations. And that was written in Truth and Power. So, yeah, man, um, well said. And what we've just discovered a new mode of being almost, and it's, and, and the reason it's so, yes. Um, I guess messianic, as you might say, is because it not only is it a new socioeconomic organization, but it has ontological implications. Like when there's no longer incentives to be Absolutely. violent towards one another. So this whole alpha and omega of human history is now called into question going forward. 
Yeah, I think actually what's kind of going on right now is actually a Hegelian synthesis of like the thesis and the antithesis destroying each other and creating mm. something new. Um, and what I think is really interesting is also this quote from Foucault here on truth and power. This is also from the same essay where Satoshi Nakamoto got his quote about essentially responding to the political implications of Bitcoin and saying, yes, but we can win a new territory of freedom in the internet because the state is good at cutting off heads of centralized entities, but not of P2P ones like Punella and Tor. Mm. And to me, what's so important is that that quote is actually related to one that, that Foucault points out about how the problem with politics is that we still haven't managed to cut off the king's head. And so we're fundamentally stuck in this problem of sovereignty that Bitcoin seems to actually explode. Uh, and like through that you know, explosion of what we consider sovereignty, we now have this totally new form that I call crypto sovereignty because uh, first and foremost, cryptography is what enables it. But I, I love this word crypto and how it means secret and how like it's rendered itself to this sort of like idiocy that you have these bros out here being like, yeah, like crypto is the future, man. Like check out my centralized shit coin. And you're like, yeah, bro, like that's crypto. All right. And so I just find it utterly hilarious that people can misuse this term so uh, nakedly while its actual terminology is serving it and advancing our cause. Cause you know, like Bitcoin is now the most powerful asset that can't be stopped. And I think we might've had doubts about it a few years ago, but I've never felt more confident about it today than before, even in the face of all of the fucked up shit that's going on. Yeah. Perhaps even, especially um, Bitcoin's done extraordinary. It's what I almost said this the other day that, in March 2020, Bitcoin's the only thing that didn't shut down, <laughs> right? Like it's we've created something that's just it's transcendent to us, to our action, to our opinion, and that's that is what makes all the difference. Um, one of these quotes that I think about a lot in relation to sovereignty, uh, I forget who said it. It was Carl Schmidt. Sovereign is he who can make the exception. Yeah. And so we've had people. Like that almost defines that's almost been the fulcrum of human history. It's just people fighting over who gets to make the rules and accept themselves to the rules whenever it suits their interests. Um, and it, you know, because and I wrote about this in a recent piece, like to establish yourself as the rule maker in a game is the power to win in perpetuity. Obviously, you can bend the rules, change the rules, break the rules, whatever, then you can do whatever you want. You can exert your sovereignty over uh, the opinions and preferences of others. And it seems like maybe that's one of the framings for Bitcoin is like we've created an exception proof property protocol, something like that, where no one can make the exception. Therefore, it maximizes the sovereignty of everyone that plays. Because no one can make the exception and become the sovereign, right? Everyone has to abide by the principle of sovereignty. Um, it's just Precisely, it's about rules, not rulers. And yes. I think uh, you you use the word being earlier, which I really appreciated because I do think that the actual ontological nature of Bitcoin fundamentally challenges our Dyson, like our being in the world. Mm. And through us having this metaphysical object that provides us assurances that nothing else in this world can. Uh, I actually believe 
one of the reasons why it's metaphysical and ultimately, I believe, messianic is because to me, the encounter with this form of truth is the rescue from uh, what I believe is false nihilism. Mm. Uh, and like a true nihilism is, is understanding not so much that God is dead as much as we have a different form of power to access God now that can't be understood by the old ways. Mm. Um and if you get a chance to read that other essay I'd point you towards, I actually talk much deeper about this concept of sovereignty and its exceptionalism. And essentially that because of the way that the exception is integrated into all forms of law, there's this ultimate dooming aspect of where the sovereign always finds himself above and outside of the law and the subject always finds himself below and outside of the law. And so the sovereign can label anybody enemy at any point in time. Those enemies may be stripped of property rights outside of the, the process of jurisprudence. And thus, now we've actually entered into a territory of, uh, I would call it force without law, you know, and, and essentially this force we see radically implemented throughout the world uh, in all sorts of ways. And, in, in, you know, from the policeman who can shoot you and not be held responsible to going through the airport and needing to look into their scanning devices and be mapped, mm. you know? And I think it's extremely important to realize uh, there's this huge structure at this point in time that I would call panoptic. It wants to capture and know everything about us. Mm -hmm. And part of the reasoning is, is because it wants this ability to classify us as friend or enemy. If it's friend, we go into the camps to be exploited. If enemy, to be liquidated and destroyed. Wow, powerful stuff. Um, I want to continue with another excerpt here. You wrote, through deconstructing the relationships between power, law, and cryptography through the lens of Foucault's biopower, we can come to understand how crypto systems create a total new form of social, economic, and ultimately political power through the literal codification of these same relations of power into crypto systems. Through this, crypto systems accomplish a twofold political task of both creating a mode of counterpower to whatever state apparatus is, uh, is maybe countering state money, state identity, commercial activity, education, etc., while at the same time as creating a new crypto solution to these modes of subjugation and ultimately the law itself. This whole superstructure has been called the cyphernet. So I've heard this called a number of different things. Uh, you know, Mark Yusko called it the trust net. Um, I, I'm, I know the cypherpunks had a term for it. Maybe it was the cypher net. But what can you just unpack that a bit? Like, clearly, we've uh, laid out the case for Bitcoin here. But what else is happening around Bitcoin that constitutes the cypher net? Yeah, and uh, one of my more recent pieces, the, the pedagogy of Bitcoin goes into this, is that it's really about a form of understanding and thought of where you're applying the same sort of praxis of total war to understanding other things. And I think this is where L2, Lightning, and all the applications that get built on it are really important because it's not necessarily just about the money, but it's about these other relationships that we want to be able to have and codify. You know, a great example would be... Um, you know, I have a car, I want to make sure I have ownership of it. I label it in some way through a cryptographic system. Somebody steals it, they can scan that QR code there and know, hey, if I return this guy's car, I get a 10% award for the value that's locked in this lightning channel already. But we can do that kind of 
over kind of the entirety of society where, you know, whatever relationship that we need to have, we can recreate it through these crypto systems. Uh, and again, reemphasizing, um, you know, I use crypto in this broader word, and it's not even to, to dispose of other projects, but it's to be able to focus on money is the most principal and core agreement that is the fundamental bedrock to our relationships of property. Mm-hmm. And from that, everything else sort of pushes out. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of my thesis about Bitcoin's development. And then uh, this word cyphernet, I actually got from an early stage Coinbase employee who is now a billionaire and is a very well-known individual in the crypto space. Um, and he shared this paper early on that had a lot of influence with me that uh, essentially was the same thesis through a different philosopher essentially looking at the idea of the sign and the signified breaking down and allowing for people to start coming to their own conclusions about how to organize ourselves utilizing these new crypto systems. Interesting. Yeah. That one way I heard Naval put it at one point that the term you're saying that crypto means secret. And he was saying that it's like secret keeping through mathematics. And, you know, that's the nature of, private property to some extent that it can be private, right? You can store wealth in a something that's private, obviously. Um, pretty important for protecting yourself. And I think one thing you said there reminded me of this other general view that I've attained. Actually, this came from my conversation with the sailor as well, that I think money is like the prime mover of human action. Right. We could, we would always say that incentives are clearly like the soil from which everything springs, all human action springs. Um, and of in the hierarchy of incentives, money is very high, if not the highest thing, because it lays claim to all the other wealth, right? It's the meta property or um, it's power, right? It's basically power in the world. And so it's almost as if money is the protocol on which we build all these other applications like businesses and nation states and institutions and banks. Like these things are all just applications of money ultimately. And no matter what they say they're, they exist for, they exist to acquire wealth, right? They exist to advance the interests of their shareholders or constituents. Um, I, I don't really think they would exist otherwise, right? If it was just a loss generating application or organization of people that eventually it would just fall away. Um, unless of course they're able to subsidize themselves through theft, which means they are advancing the interests of their constituents and they exist again, still to their bottom line. So I can't even escape that. And I, that seems to be a really important point to me. It's like people, we think there's like many people think that we have businesses and then we have governments and then we have these institutions and they have like different incentives and different things but at the end of the day they're all kind of businesses right and it makes intuitive yeah, and they all, that... sorry go ahead they'll sort of overlay and, and and intermesh uh and i think like with you know uh i think first of all kind of addressing this idea between money and wealth and how they've hypostatized in the the normal world and if we like go back in time where we're back on a gold standard there's now this much more contentious relationship between governments and businesses because they don't control the money directly. Right. And then furthermore, like a vision looking farther out, like in a world on a Bitcoin standard, like I actually think food producers are going to be some of the richest people 
because they have such a high velocity of money, in addition to to deflationary money, they're always able to exchange goods. And so they can accumulate much faster than other individuals. But because we live in fucked up clown society, we have a place where like, oh, people can horrifically abuse these animals and these massive conglomerate things and get a bunch of sponsorship from governments. And it creates these really messed up relationships that are not only make the incentives really disaligned, but what alarms me even more is uh, like the decapitation of the relationship between uh, wealth ethics and legality. Mm-hmm. And so that like this whole idea that, look, I'm running a business that makes money, I win. But like, it turns out that like you're making money by doing something pretty horrific. You can still do that in the age of statism. Right. Whereas I think coming back to a real standard of money, you know, like if I'm doing something pretty criminal and terrible, I'm going to have a harder time hiding out with that because of the way that I can't take advantage of all of these different status things that can sponsor and support me. And so uh, there's a great quote from Hobbes essentially saying like, look, like without the sovereign, like we go back into just like pure brutal barbarism where like we don't have education or music or society or any of this good shit. Because we, we can't even just stop beating the shit out of each other with clubs, mm-hmm. which the state has provided a way out of that. But now we're so far past it that we're, we're essentially being beaten down by those same people with clubs. And they're holding back the advancement of society because wealth and money no longer actually have true relations to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... But yeah, it's almost as like the more statism advances, the more it's increasing the incentives for citizens or whatever you want to call it, subjects of the state to be more horrific towards one another, right? The more people are Mm -hmm. being stolen from via via inflation or taxation or whatever, the more desperate they become, uh, the more barbaric they'll behave, right? And you you could look at the extreme end of this as just a hyperinflation event. When the money breaks, people are just completely, you know, you're reduced to your local circle of trust. You're eating the cats and dogs. You're doing whatever you can do to survive, basically. And that would be the extreme end of uh, statism, effectively. So my, the thing that, another way that maybe highlights the profundity of Bitcoin's emergence is that if money is the prime mover, money is the base layer protocol, all these things we looked at across history basically just been applications you know of money ultimately of gold what happens when you swap out that baseline protocol right we get all new applications like everything ourselves our businesses our governments our institutions nothing looks the same um yeah it's it's really wild to think uh you know it's the same world same stuff going on but there's radical new perspectives in the exact same way that uh, people coming to awareness about germs existing in the world, mm-hmm. you know, like that fundamentally shifted everybody's viewpoints of how, you know, people started washing their hands and other basic hygiene things started to happen. And then the same evolution happens like the I know you must have had this happen at least a thousand times to you as well. But you go talking to somebody they want to know about Bitcoin. And you go, well, tell me, what do you know about money? How does it work? They don't have a fucking clue. And and even funny, like this will be from people that work in finance or banking or, 
You know, I, I've shared before that I had a friend that worked at the Fed and we were once talking about velocity of money. And he was like, no, I'm not like this concept. It's not super clear to me. Uh, yeah. And I think that's really important because this goes back into the larger societal thing of that, uh, like language is fundamentally failing at this point in time. And one thing that I find so fascinating is that these people that are in very powerful positions who are very well educated have such a deep hubris that they they know what they think they know, that they're willing to stake it everything on it. And as we know, because they don't have any skin in the game, they will absolutely fuck this up and not be held accountable in any meaningful way. You know, that your your average street level drug dealer knows a lot more about economics than somebody at the Fed. So true and funny at the same time. Yeah, I think the the being in traditional finance actually blinds you to this. Again, back to incentives, right? You're not really incentivized to ask why in finance. Like you're incentivized to just make money, right? Do whatever you can to make money. You don't really even need to know how it works or what it is, really. You just need to make more of it. <laughs> um, and that's been quite ironic to see people that come from that background be even more resistant to the ideas that Bitcoin um, really, I, what does it, what does it do? It, it introduces to us or it makes us ask questions about like the fundamental nature of money and whatnot. So I'll go back to another excerpt here and you, this particular one, you're actually opening with an excerpt from Foucault and then you, I'll read some from, from your paper. Foucault writes, quote, isn't power simply a form of warlike domination? Shouldn't one therefore conceive all problems of power in terms of relations of war? Isn't power a sort of generalized war, which assumes a, at particular moments the forms of peace and the state? Peace would then be a form of war, and the state means of waging it. Excuse me. And then you go on to write, Perhaps Satoshi, in understanding the statement above, understood that in order for him to create a new form of money, which is a form of social contract, he first had to be entirely outside of the grasp of any state power. Satoshi knew that if he were to commit the greatest crime that had ever been committed, the final crime, which both abolishes old money and society, while constituting the new as well, there is no doubt that he would be branded an eternal enemy of any and all states. Thus Satoshi knew he must, he must have perfect forward secrecy as homo sacer to ensure that the violence which can, always be which can always be found a particular person through nationalistic identification of the flesh would never be able to unveil him. Thus, as the final criminal, he is also the first citizen of the new agreement of money that constituted the bloom of the cipher net and the hope of a liberated technological future. Boom. Beautiful. Boom. I, it's what? always fun having people write, read my stuff I wrote. Cause I'm like, wow, I sound smart. <laughs> Funny. Um, homo Sacer, I clicked, there's a hyperlink in there. I clicked it and it went to a paper I think you've recommended before. Could you just tell us what that is? Yeah, the Latin term homo sacer, and it means the sacred man. But in this term, it doesn't necessarily mean like, He's holy and sanctified. It actually means that like he has broken his oath to the gods and he is now outside and beyond their protection. And so what happened was in ancient Roman society, if you took an oath and you broke it, like now anybody could kill you. However, you could not be sacrificed. 
And this is very important because it means that you are outside of the purview of the gods. They wanted nothing to do with you. And so Giorgio Ambigen, who was a student of Heidegger's, he uses Homo Sucur where he builds out this whole series that it's super long. Uh, it's the only like complete philosophical series that I've read. Um, but it's very profound because he essentially traces the archaeology of these like non-people, these people that can be killed but not sacrificed throughout history, trying to figure out like what the fuck is going on? Like, how does this work? And so this is kind of how I encountered Carl uh, Schmidt and the idea of the sovereign exception. Uh, and he has many other books that are really good, such as uh, Stasis, which is the idea of civil war and how civil wars kind of play out throughout society and the importance of it. Uh, and I found the entire series extremely informative towards kind of the metaphysics that I'm trying to approach. And what I think is really important is understanding that there are always these people because of what they represent in society and the quote unquote danger that they always pose to society in the same way that Satoshi and that Bitcoiners are posing a danger to society today, that they will eventually use the state of emergency to say, hey, these people are enemy combatants. They're using tools of war against us. We have a right to assume war against them and steal whatever rights, Bitcoins or anything else they have from them. Uh, it's a very fucked up and dark idea, but I think it's one that Satoshi led with and that he needed to fully understand in order to create Bitcoin as he did. And I actually think uh, when we look at Bitcoin at its greatest praxis that Satoshi was really an artist who completely transmorphified into his identity. And furthermore, the presentation of Bitcoin is his magnus opus that, you know, as far as I can tell, it seems to be to the same level of artistry that Prometheus was when he stole the fire to give it to humans, mm -hmm. which is to say there's not any form of art that has ever been presented in such an extraordinary way to present truth to man. Which I think is the ontological bit as well. Yeah, it's um, the Greeks called it what techni, which is like the power of mm -hmm. technology or something. Yeah, and clearly he's delivered that in a very profound way. There's this old Carl Jung notion that I heard indirectly through Peterson that the fool is the precursor to the savior, and this was um, another idea. I found explored in the book Leela by Robert Persig, where he's saying that I bought that after you recommended it to me, but I haven't read it yet. Nice. We'll be doing a series on it soon. I think it's a very profound book. Um, very good, very easy, easy read, enjoyable read. He's a great writer. Um, he makes Persig makes one of the points that a purpose of society is to try and disentangle whether someone operating at the edge of the Overton window, he doesn't use this term, but um, someone that's doing things in a new way or breaking the laws or changing the laws, like they're either a degenerate or a revolutionary, right? They might have some really important ideas that will reform and re-architect society, or they might just be these kind of like lawless people that are after their own gain to some extent. So, um, Satoshi kind of like really took that to the extreme, I guess, like the ultimate act of, I don't know if it's treason or just transgression against the state monopoly on money. Um, and in doing so, he pioneers this totally blue ocean, uncharted space, right? This digital frontier. Um, 
So is that what it, I mean, Satoshi's like the ultimate pseudonymous pioneer or something to that effect? Yeah, like the way I think about him is like he he's like the first immigrant to like this new land that he discovered. And he like invited everybody. He was like, check it out. Like, turns out there's this whole other world of property that exists online. And like, there's 21 million of them. Come on over. And, <laughs> and like those of us that got in early, it was the land grab. We're like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. this is great. There's this new space. The state doesn't exist. We can do yeah. what we want. And even more interesting is so like in this opening, the degenerates were like, it's a money we can exchange on the Internet. Like, yeah. Let's sell everyone drugs. Yeah. And like now we have the greatest revolution that has ever happened to drug markets happen online. And now people can get their drugs in a safer way. It, you know, like everything. It's such a radical improvement in one of the largest markets that exists. But because the state doesn't acknowledge it, you know, these fucking clowns can't even see that there's something really profound going on, you know. And for me, that was one of the switches that hit me real hard was when I was reading about Bitcoin and I was like, people can buy drugs with this online. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that means that the state actually can't control it. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, and the reason why I point this out is that, uh, you know, this is similar to the idea of the Lumpen proletariat, which was a Marxist idea of that, like, the bottom rung of society, like they're all these kind of criminals and ne'er do wellers, but like they could actually be used to try to do something useful. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was like kind of the very early kind of anarchist, uh, kind of gesturally game going on. And I think it's also came full cycle again in that, like, now we have the fool again kind of leading the entire procession of cryptography, which I think is hilarious because they're like leading the Trojan horse that like is Bitcoin, like with fucking Shiba Inu coin and that kind of bullshit. So, yeah, it's, I think a very useful way to look at it is that we have like discovered a new continent where the, where coercion doesn't work. Right. It's like, and we know, like we know with the study of history that the higher the integrity of private property rights, the more, wealth a civilization can create right because again wealth we can only create wealth through trade we can't point a gun at people and i mean you can make them create a little bit of wealth in the short run but they're not going to trade efficiently and innovate uh on the point of a gun so this new continent is like the ultimate wealth producing terrain or something like that and it, and people are just figuring it out right it's like holy shit i can put all my life's energy in this place that nobody can steal or manipulate. That's amazing. Like clearly everyone's going to choose that once they figure it out. Uh, and you have incentives to figure it out first. So it's like this vortex just sucking people in. Um, I don't think it's funny that like that gap between uh, it's just too good to believe. And yeah. like, there's so many people I run into that, like I really try to tell them that and like, it just, they just can't connect it. And I'm like, I get it. Like you, you live in this crazy fucked up world where everything's wrong and nihilistic, yeah. but like this thing isn't. Uh, yeah. I have a couple of friends that are very far leftist. And I, and I was really trying, cause like, I think there's a great alliance to be made with leftists if they could really understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, they just couldn't bite into it. And it, you know, it, it breaks my heart and I know they'll come back to it. Because, you know, we all missed the lifeboat as the opportunity, but we sure as hell hop back on when it's coming back as the lifeboat. Yeah, well said. And it, you almost have pity for them in a way because in this fiat world where everything is a scam, like to a greater or lesser extent, 
to tell someone like, oh yeah, there's this place you can put your money and it's totally, it's like the ultimate property, right? No one can steal it or manipulate it. That sounds pretty scammy at, you know, first blush. So it's all, you know, what's that joke that, not even a joke, but Naval, I think Naval said this as well, that Bitcoin is this world shattering innovation wrapped up in a get rich quick scheme. And if you don't look deeply it, into it's it, hilarious. You, you think it's just a scheme basically. Yeah. And to me, like that's, that's, again, this points to the greater metaphysics of it is that like, like how hilarious is it that like God loves us enough to like have created this object into the world and to like wrap it in this disguise as a scam. And you're like, start unwrapping it. It's like, ha ha, it's ontological truth. Like now you have to deal with these profound insights of like what it means to have real money that can't be stolen from you. Uh, And like, I, that used to make me angry. Uh, and like, there are still places that I do, but like, it's funny, man. Like it's fucking funny that some random dude showed up on the internet, produced this metaphysical object and vanished and like did all of these things so perfectly that like these insanely powerful entities like the CCP can't find him. Like yeah. that shit's funny. Yeah. Um, and to me, like it, it, it's a relief. Cause like, I feel like that's the only way that this joke could be told. Is that like, oh, you think the world's a super fucked up place and nothing has any meaning and that, you know, God's dead and there is nothing? Check it out. Like, here's this money that, like, saves right. the world from everything. It's it's weird, man. It is And funny. it's been hard for me with, you know. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say my, the, these, these friends of mine that are deep leftists, you know, I've been telling them about this since, like, $100. And, like, we still get together. And it's really hard because, like, you know, they're like, well, Eric's doing just fine. I'm like, like, get on board, guys. And they're like, no, it's going to go back down a bunch. I'm like, ah. That's funny. Um, it is, it's ironic, to say the least. And it's, it stands in stark contrast to this status propaganda that's the opposite, right? Like it's saying, like, in 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, right? Like it's saying... On the surface, it's one thing, but if you know anything about property and you see through that statement, it's the opposite, right? It's like the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing, whereas Bitcoin's a reverse. Bitcoin's like the truth in scams clothing or something like that. Um, yeah, it's like to it's to dress as the fool to like be the 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 philosopher or something, you know, yeah. like which makes it. I mean, but it's interesting. It's proof of work, though, right? Because. Again, it will reward those that do the work to actually understand it and not just dismiss it um, at first glance, which I, like many people, I dismissed it back in 2014, kind of at first glance. I bought a little bit and sold a little bit, was just moved on. Um, But I always kicked myself for not going down the rabbit hole sooner. You know, I, I... I feel super fortunate for, for some reason, there was some trigger in my head that like, I was lucky enough that it was flicked early on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've said this before, like, I just felt crazy for a long time and I just kind of accepted that about myself. Um, and in all honesty, it's only been through interactions with you and John and a lot of the other guys over the past four years that like, I've really started to accept, uh, that pejorativizing and labeling myself as being crazy for seeing the fundamental truth about how like this can actually rescue us from the horrors of the globalist communist agenda that's coming down 
And furthermore, like not only is it going to save us from the Antichrist, but like it, it's going to create this totally new world that's like full of liberty and freedom and, uh, you know, way more wealth than we could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fact that we're just opening up this energy piece where like we're starting to affect the energy industry is so exciting because like to me, this is not only where Bitcoin becomes more powerful, but this is where uh, like the knife fight between nation states starts and like El Salvador has now fired that off at first. And it's going to be really interesting because uh, like as all of this shit unwinds, because it's super obvious that uh, strong inflation, if not hyperinflation is coming pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. that as that kicks off, there's going to be a number of smart countries similar to El Salvador that are going to be like Bitcoiners come on in. You know, we'll give you incentives to set up industries. And it's going to be awesome because, like, we're going to make some big, crazy Bitcoin country that's going to become, you know, the Singapore of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and furthermore, we'll probably get ourselves in this space and probably create some sort of space alliance that can actually counter, you know, essentially the UN and all these other globalist forces at this point in time. At least that's my crazy fantasy. <laughs> I think you will enjoy the book, Leela, because. Persig, he actually writes a little bit, and I don't know, his first book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, he writes more about it, where he actually went crazy in the book, but he did it in real life, too. And a lot of it was just, he was going crazy because he was looking very deeply into things. Like, the question that threw him for the ultimate loop was, what is quality or what is value? And, you know, very clearly, it's very closely related to what is money. And that's a question that Bitcoin makes you ask and all that. So um, I find it very heartening to see that, to hear your story about you coming back around, right? Just like Percy came back around and he wrote this book that I think is way underappreciated right now. But it's going to be one of those books that just gets better with time as more people read it. Um, So to fork back to Bitcoin here. Satoshi was like the ultimate pioneer, right? He just literally planted this flag in this totally new coercion-free space. And to your point, he's now creating the opportunity for future pioneering, right? Where we can actually, we've pioneered under the Bitcoin network. We've uh, began using this money that's very favorable to entrepreneurship, right? You can store the fruits of your labor in this, you know, deep freeze if you want, if you if you will. But that starts to become reflected in physical reality when we start to pioneer new actual spaces, right? We, as nation states are losing revenues by the existence of Bitcoin, they're going to be more open to negotiations with newly rich Bitcoiners, which then go in and, you know, start to pull this digital reality back into physical reality. So there's this constant um, interfacing, I guess, between the two realms. And that just, it blows my mind. It's like you're you're peering through the fractal or something. Uh, yeah. And then furthermore, like the way that these Bitcoiners, not only are they wealthy now and they have a deflationary money, but like they fundamentally view money differently. And there's a Mm. whole different set of economics at play. And so like, uh, you know, I live close to the coast and there's extremely powerful tidal forces out there. And I look at that and I'm like, oh shit, like I can use this for Bitcoin mining. Mm. And I know that there's people out, you know, Nicaragua who are looking at volcanoes and, and, there's going to be this new opening for this pioneership because now we have this fundamental way to capture energy that's never been available before. Right. And it's so important because this is engaging in 
Schumpner's creative destruction, which is the idea that you're not just trying to make a part of the industry better, that you're fundamentally striking at the base of it to create something new. It is the equivalent of making a car to replace the horse as opposed to a horse that runs faster. Hmm. Yeah, well said. Uh, I'm going to go back to another excerpt here that sort of puts a button on what we're talking about. You wrote, quote, by first absconding beyond the physical realm into homogenized bits, Satoshi purified himself from the capacity of being branded in the flesh and comprised, I'm sorry, and compromised through physical identification by transmorgifying into the nameless, formless, other uh, Levinus stranger, which I nor anyone else can have no power over. Satoshi was the first to colonize this new territory of freedom with a new kind of social contract. I'm sorry, I mispronounced one of the words. What was Levinas? Levinas? Uh, that individual is Levinas. And Levinas, he, he was another student of Heidegger's, and, and he had a different perspective. And this is specifically referring to uh, Levinas's idea of uh, ontology and being focuses on the other and the encounter with the other first and foremost. But it's the idea of an other that like I don't actually have power over. Because like mm-hmm. if I have power over them, they're not an other, but they're a subject. And that this is really important because I think Satoshi, he's this encounter with the perfect other. And I have other essays where I talk about uh, this sort of agape that's expressed through the idea to honor and cherish and respect you enough to give you not only cryptography, but a way to protect the value beyond even a way that he could affect uh, is is really profound. You know, like I, I think it is a kind of love that uh, as to piss off some religious people, like I think it's literally messianic. It is a mm-hmm. praxis of love that is so great. It actually opens humanity up to the infinity that could be our existence into all of time and space if we can conquer this global communism where we're at, uh, right. which you know makes it all the more resounding and also makes me think that it is fundamentally and frankly eschological at its total apex. Interesting. Yeah. So I love that you brought up Agape. Um, you know, one of the most important things in Christianity is that notion. Like we've collapsed it in English to love, but just for the audience, mm-hmm. you know, the Greeks had Eros, Philia, and Agape, three different types of love. Eros is consumptive love. I love the bag of potato chips. Philia is uh, reciprocal love. I love my friends, my family, my romantic partner. Agape is the love of a parent for a child. There's not even reciprocity there, right? You bring your child home from birth and they're just an inert lump, yet you love them beyond all possible uh, imaginations, the highest form of love. And it's almost as if, maybe one framing that I use a lot is this universal human proclivity to seek something for nothing, right? We're either trying to do it through innovation or through you know more immoral means like taking, really making or taking the entrepreneurial path or the status path. But Satoshi in Agape, I guess you could say, gave us the ultimate something for nothing, actually. He inverted that. Instead of seeking something for nothing for himself, he actually did the opposite and then disappeared and never touched it. So it is, I mean, it's God-like action maybe and and then and you could maybe further say uh saint like reserve if he's still alive because the guy has a 
60 billion dollar liquid net worth and he's never touched it or done anything or uh you know i haven't seen the satoshi lambo flying around so he either yeah is actually I mean, dead like, or the keys are gone or he has a saint like um uh fortitude well i'm like you know i'll take this to an even more extreme place like what what if what his actions were like actually totally hypostatized over the actions of god you know mm. like why it's really hard for us to try to imagine that. But, you know, to me, that's a lot of the way that I understand, like, how Jesus, the man hypostatized with Christ, is that, like, he lived as Christ would. And it's not because, you know, it, he had anything exceptional about him. The only thing that was exceptional was his grace and the way that he performed as a human in the world. And I think in the same way, that kind of grace, uh, came about through Satoshi and uh, his preciseness with this form of art that he produced, you know? And I think uh, to speak to the agape, to, to, to really pull back and try to imagine the idea that one is to create a sound form of money that all human beings across the earth can utilize and that no one can ever steal. I mean, like that, that sounds cyanic to me. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Satoshi was able to do this uh, immaculate conception of Bitcoin, uh, if you will, and that it got deployed and that it's where it is today. Like that was a very slim chance. Mm -hmm. And so like I, um, you know, to, to me, like that's really important. Also, not to just mention, you know, where we're at in the constellation of human development, that like if we didn't get this development at the end of 2009, like we'd, we'd be absolutely fucked right now. Like there is no way that there would be any kind of solution to what's going on right now. And so like, like why now? Why did the entire building of history up to this point in time arrive like right here at the nick of time? Like. Whew, it, like it's crazy man and like these are the kind of things that i look at where i'm like okay like i i'm insane i'm like seeing all this stuff and then i meet guys like you and you're like oh no like that that works and i'm like shit <laughs> shit it's real yeah it's oh, man like satoshi has a working implementation of ethics right we just Instead of just scribbling these things on a document saying, hey, life, liberty, and property forever, that some, some status could just ignore a few generations later or gradually you know, um, remove himself from, as we've seen in the US over the past 200 some odd years, he took those principles and like anchored them into this energetic network that is Bitcoin. And so now it's like we've taken the do not steal ethic and just made it um, we concretized it, made it implemented and wrapped in incentives. And that's, it's hard to overstate that, you know, there's no other comparable implementation. I, mean, I guess you could say the state was sort of geared to be that it was like creating disincentives to theft, for instance, like under the law, um, and whatnot, but that has its own issues clearly as we're seeing today. Um, so I don't know. It's one of the things I was saying in Miami is that perhaps Bitcoin is like the beginning of civilization. Like we think we're in civilization now and those idiots back in the dark ages didn't know what they were doing. Um, but maybe all this was just kind of the dress rehearsal for actual civilization beginning with the birth of Bitcoin. 
Yeah, like I, I imagine in uh, like some unknowable year because human humanity has like traversed throughout the galaxy and like, you know, we find ourselves over in the Sombrero galaxy and we're like flying around as energy clouds. Like I think like Bitcoin will like be this rhymosome that people will, like look at the code and shit and they'll be like, yeah, like, th- like this is what like the apes use to like get off of like their ape planet to like become like real people like us, you know? And, uh, and again, like I, it, we can't understate that, like, you know, it wasn't so many generations ago that like all of the shit we're talking about is just like wacky magical powers, you know, like yes. the reason that there was never a philosophical treat about like what we would do when we would get, you know, this ability to communicate trans globally with anybody through the internet today is like, that's just like such a ridiculous and fucked up outside thought that like nobody ever even considered it for a moment. Mm-hmm. And so like now we have this piece of hyper technology that like most of us don't appreciate and can't pull ourselves away from it enough to see how wide and powerful it is. And I think that trying to come to terms with the fact that like we're just dealing with something fundamentally new that humanity has never approached mm-hmm. before is really important. And in my own investigations right now, I'm pretty deep into the linguistic and semantics of it. Cause like, I think what's going on is that like cryptography in and of itself through Bitcoin essentially made its own form of semantics through cryptography. And, and, and the explicit reason is to reduce everything down to positive or negative statements. Yes or no, a binary. So that this exceptionalism that comes out in language can't ever happen. And that's extremely important because their Bitcoin doesn't have any semantical word to try to lie about anything. It can't even fucking do it. And so like, that's what makes its language so powerful and why it can keep an oath that all men, all institutions, all societal forms always break. Mm -hmm. Well, with the exception of how we understand who and what God is. Yeah, I like that you called it a hyper technology because one of the big aha moments for me was realizing that human nature is part and parcel to this machine, (laughs) right? Like we are Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, clearly, right? The incentives are changing us. We're we're participating in it, developing around it, evangelizing it, et cetera. That's, I mean, ultimately humans make every technology because the technology is there to really serve our ends, but this is something different. Like it, it's interfacing with us. Um, and maybe one way to think about that is through the difficulty adjustment, like the harder we chase it, it adapts, right? And the less we try to produce it, it adapts again. So it's constantly adapting the difficulty of the network basically to our action. That's crazy. That's something fundamentally new. That's what distinguishes life really right is this ability to you know consciously adapt even though it's very simple a very simple algorithm it's unlike any institution we've ever had yeah you know that like we can't understate the importance of that in the world particularly today like where all of this crazy fucked up nonsense is going on having these particular assurances through this particular language in a way that proofs itself. Like, yeah, this is like the dawn of civilization, you know, and Mm. the next essay we'll talk about it is, you know, they answer the question, what is the enlightenment? And I very much believe we're going through kind of a second iteration of the enlightenment vis-a-vis technology, Mm. you know, and then, 
And it's only, you know, like I'm not some fucking math wizard. Like I can just run the algorithms on my computer and check it. And so it's this, this ability to build a relationship with the machine that allows for you to trust it and the code more fundamentally than anything else is this really profound change that like the only institution I can compare it to is the classic church. And that like, I would go to the church, you know, for the spiritual algorithm to like, give me whatever protection I is. But, you know, you and I both know at the end of the day, like that's much more of a performative liturgy than actually engaging in any meaningful way to make it work. Mm. Yeah. Well said. And I, I think you've called, I might be jumping the gun here, but was it a super language object? Is that what you were uh, referring to Bitcoin as in one of our last conversations? Yeah, I was calling it a super language. Because it has created its own semantics. Is that what that means? Yeah. And essentially, like, we can think of every new block as this, like, adding of new words that it has that, like, is the transaction ID for everything. And, like, moving forward, it has this entire dictionary that like it can refer to everything and like it and all of those things have been cryptographically proven so like if somebody is trying to lie like it can't get in that entire chain right and so through this production of uh like its own kind of panoptic semantics like it can look at all of its own history immediately yeah it creates this sort of performative language that can only operate in a verification or an invalidation Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Okay, I want to segue back into your piece here, um, which this is starts to talk about you know, the profundity of Bitcoin. So you write, quote, the blockchain has revealed itself to be the Columbus egg of truth the manifest destiny of the information age, and quite possibly even the true face of capitalism in its final form. Perhaps only in this final state of capitalism was it even possible for a form of capital so radically liberated from any state power that it cannot even find a real identity to which to find foothold to exert power from. This allows for the game of total war, that is state capitalism, to play itself out within the full theater offered to it, which not only captures the life of all people, but all economic and political institutions as well. It is this later fact that is exploited to create an economic machine of truth so powerful that it acts as a weapon of war against state capitalism. And again, there's a, there's a really important 
important point here that pertains to proof of work is that, um, again, I, I'm reflecting on um, one of Sailor's points, he has these seven uh, layers of security generated by proof of work. Basically, all any crypto asset that's not proof of work is just imaginary bullshit, frankly. You have to root it in energy to cause it to reshape all these other political and economic realities. Otherwise, you're just playing a video game, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, POS is, is fiat 2.0. You know, like yeah. it, it, it literally has uh, an endogenous creation from a set of wealthy people who then continue to expand that wealth. Yes. You know, um, and, and I think it, it, the other point in there that I think is really important, I, I do regret that I used the word blockchain instead of time chain. Um, but like there, there's, and unfortunately these words, capitalism and communism fail so much because of how kind of radically intertwined they are. Uh, but essentially what I'm seeing is that this form of capital liberated from any kind of state and now allows for itself to assert its own worth and value. And it turns out that like in a totalitarian status world, a non-status money that can assert itself through a protocol like that becomes the most valuable object that exists. Yes, it's as if Bitcoin is the ultimate form of Schumpterian creative destruction, right? That it was created by the canopy of state capitalism, I guess, or statism to some extent, but then its emergence actually destroys its uh, progenitor, I guess. I think what's funny is that like... uh like Bitcoin isn't inherently causing this process. Like it's the state and like right. it's the state's opposition to it and the state's forcefulness with it. And furthermore, now, uh, you know, to me, the nation state problem was always the final one, but with, with El Salvador accepting it as their national currency, we've now entered into the final game, which is the prisoner's dilemmas of states competing against each other for mm -hmm. this object, uh, which is kind of hilarious. And that like it, it pretty much aligns with the sovereign individual's thesis at the very end and like how it kind of plays out. Right. Yeah. It's game theory all the way down and all the way up. Right. And you can't, unless you can figure out a way to eradicate Darwinian reality, then there's not really a, I mean, or, you know, we'll say as long as there's no black swan event that takes out Bitcoin by some way, we can't, fathom because it's a black swan then bitcoin just keeps doing what it's doing it just keeps monetizing because it's bent all the incentives of everyone towards its success indeed and, and like one thing i think to, to comment that is, is of an extra sort of hilarious nature is like if we were back in the classical age uh and like somehow we like had bitcoin uh but like the same societal standards existed I think they would all find this pretty laughable. They'd be like, oh, like you need a machine to like make sure that nobody inflates anything. Like, what are you a bunch of fucking pussies that can't keep your oaths to anything? Yeah. Yeah. Like that, yeah. That actually is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, yeah. It, it, it considers truthfully the fallibility of human nature and is constructed in a way that, that honors that. Right. Or it, um, one of the ways I've put it, or I've heard it put is that I think I said it earlier in this conversation is that human nature is one of its core operating components. 
Like it is, it's not just something that stands outside of it and uses Bitcoin. It's like integral to Bitcoin. And that's why I think it has all these interesting effects on us. Because it, as we talked about earlier, this, this fractal reflection, right? This uh, reciprocity between man and tool. We know that across history that, you know, our incentives and whatnot shape our behavior. But this thing, like when you actually make human behavior part of the tool and you've integrated it fully, how much more profound is that reciprocity? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm like the, the only thing I can think of a similar vein that we've seen in human society is the alignment when people come to the same religious principles. And like, mm-hmm. that's sort of right. the evolution that we saw come out of Western Europe with the ability for people to be in this agreement about Christendom. There could still be independent sovereign states, but because there was this fundamental praxis that sort of married them in the middle, they were able to operate with each other. And so very much in the same way that now that we have Bitcoin and we've discovered it, we're all finding other Bitcoiners and they're like, well, you know, like he, you know. He, he's a Bitcoiner that, you know, owns 10 cats. And I really don't like that about him, but, you know, he's still a Bitcoiner. So we can interact around that. Well, yeah. and, I, and so it acts as this global shilling point where we all get to like marry up. And so long as we have this base agreement about, hey, we shouldn't steal from each other. We should use cryptographic protocols to work together. I mean, this can marry up the whole of humanity in this beautiful new age where, Money is no longer a thing that states get to create unilaterally, but are agreements and exchanges that we make with each other. Yeah, I liked the terminology that John Verveke used on this was the sacred canopy, or I guess you could also call it a symbolic canopy. That we hmm. That's what gives human beings the power to run shit on earth is that we can organize ourselves in, under these large flags of the nation state or the church or whatever, human rights, right, money all these useful fictions and Bitcoin is just like the most pristine incorruptible one we've ever had. And it's just very simple, just mapped to reality, like the reality of, of energy, right? You can't create additional Bitcoin. just like we can't create additional energy um, wrapped or mapped to the reality of self-ownership. Like we clearly each own ourselves and are responsible for ourselves but the nation state often infantilizes us out of that or, or attempts to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say from cradle to grave, it, its intention is to do that. You know, and yeah. that's part of the problem with modernity is that like it doesn't want self-responsibility. It wants uh, capitulation and subjection, you know, mm-hmm. and like we're witnessing that with this COVID stuff to very extreme extents. Um, and again, I think like, this is all this crazy metaphysical stuff about like Bitcoin is a powerful discovery in and of itself, but it's critique and contrast against our society, particularly is so profound, Yes, you know, because like, uh, you know, the fact that these financiers are some of the wealthiest people on the planet. Like I, there's a great quote from uh, Gary Glensler saying something. It was in a speech he gave where he was pretty much being like, oh, yeah, like financiers like they should be the richest people in in the world because like they're the funnel like all money has to go through them and they they manage that well so like they should be the richest and it's like the people in power who make the rules are at this place where they're incentivized to create these structures for their friends because they they believe these things about them to be true like they think 
that a man who works with his hands 15 hours a day should be paid less than them for pushing numbers around a screen. Right. That's crazy. But it's right. also the world we live in. And because of how extraordinary the critique that Bitcoin is to modernity, that's what makes it all the more powerful. And ultimately, I think, is messianic. You know, if we live back in a day where, where the word still mattered and oaths could actualize themselves and, and people had something other than the raw authority of the state, I don't think Bitcoin would be nearly as powerful. Yeah, it's reacquainting us with the noble pursuit that is work, right? Like no longer can you just be this dipshit bureaucrat pushing numbers around, as you said, when you're pushing those numbers around has very real world consequences on all the people working with our hands to, or minds even to create actual value in the world. Um, and they're, they're not working. They're not doing work actually, right? They might say they're going to work, but they're not actually creating value, useful value in the world for other people. They're administering and playing the zero sum game of confiscation and extraction. It's parasitic. So mm -hmm. we had, you know, I've called the, I've said this before about Bitcoin. It's like Bitcoin is the, the parasiticide to bureaucrats. It just, removes the attack surface on which they they live mm -hmm. yeah and and i think uh these sort of changes in ourselves of realizing that uh like i think without bitcoin contrasted against all these things it's very easy to to accept hey like this is just the way the world turns and like i'm just doing my job this is it mm -hmm. And so I think once you kind of encounter this object, you can take self-ownership. It starts all these gears in your head that, uh, as far as I can tell, it does. I, I couldn't stop it with myself, and I haven't met many other people that have stopped it. But I, I got to imagine that there are some pretty powerful people out there who, like, they start to get into it, and they go, whoa, wait, this is, like, dangerous, criminal, woo-woo, I don't know. Uh, and so I think it's really important to realize that uh, you know, the, this recreates money in the way that it was always supposed to be. And as it was historically understood and as, as it always functioned throughout human history, it's just within modernity that things have changed in such a radical way that we don't recognize or remember that this is actually how money is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Uh, so I'll shift back to one more excerpt here and here you're quoting, Foucault's presentation of the cracks in the state's power via law in this passage. And this, again, this is Foucault, quote, to pose the problem in terms of the state means to continue posing it in terms of sovereign and sovereignty. That is to say, in terms of law. If one describes all these phenomena of power as dependent on the state apparatus, this means grasping them as essentially repressive. The army as the power of death, police, and justice as punitive instances, et cetera. I don't want to say that the state isn't important. What I want to say is that relations of power and hence the analysis that come, hence the analysis that must be made of them necessarily extend beyond the limits of the state in two senses. First of all, because the state for all the omnipotence of its apparatuses is far from being able to occupy the whole field of actual power relations. And further, because the state can only operate on the basis of other already existing power relations. The state is superstructural in relation to a whole series of power networks, 
that invest the body, sexuality, the family, kinship, knowledge, technology, and so forth. True, these networks stand in a conditioning-conditioned relationship to a kind of meta power, which is structured essentially around a certain number of great prohibition functions. But this meta power with its prohibitions can only take hold and secure its footing where it is rooted in a whole series of multiple and indefinite power relations that supply the necessary basis for the great negative forms of power. So yeah, it's the, we had to, we're again, harnessing energy in the world in all these different ways, right? Body, sexuality, family, kinship, knowledge, technology, but there has to be some cohesive, I think what he's calling the meta power here that, uh, I guess you could think it's either over it or under it. I don't know if it's foundational or over the top of it um, that coordinates the whole thing. And that's just historically been the state, um, at least in recent history. Um, I guess you could say, I mean, depending how you define the state, like, you know, the tribal level, you kind of have the big guy with the stick. He was the state when the small tribe. Yeah. The the modern nation state, as we understand it, is fundamentally different from, say, the the Catholicdom that reigned throughout the Middle Ages, but it still was inherently the state. Yes. Um, Uh, So what's he saying? You're saying that we've... It's super structural in relation relation to this whole series of power networks. Um, but then I guess the, the supposition of Bitcoin's existence is that there's something else to coordinate those power networks. Yes. And, and, and so one is, is that in order to make sure that this meta power first can't find a foothold anywhere, like crypto's opening move is, is to blind the state. It's to say, hey, you can't identify anybody in any transactions here. And that identification function is like one of its primary key components that it utilizes to organize because like Mm -hmm. that's the meta structuring. And so, you know, once we have identity established, we can say, well, you know, Robert, uh, well, this is different today, but it used to classically be like, Robert, you're a man, your role in society is to go out and win wealth for people, blah, blah, blah. And actually more interestingly is because of the, the more modern dialogues that we've been having this, like some of these concepts, uh, I, are going past breaking down and actually transmorphifying into something else. Uh, and I think it's very interesting because essentially these all happen because the state can identify us. It can put us into different classifications and essentially tell us how we're supposed to be and exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And essentially Bitcoin and all of these other crypto projects, they want to start from a blinding perspective. And I think that this is really important because these power structures can't find any footing anywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't have the ability to say, hey, Robert, you need to act this way. You need to pay your taxes. You need to do this. Or that. I don't even know if you're a fucking person at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like this is one of these really valuable things in understanding how the state and these superstructural relationships operate to each other is that it always needs to be able to find a person first, and then it's going to create a number of restrictions around them in different ways. It's mm-hmm. not about creating empowerment through freedom and liberty for you to go choose and be an empowered individual. It's about you need to do these particular things in order to make sure that you fit in with society and that you're one of the good people. Yes. Um, one of the books I've read partially comes to mind here. It's called Seeing Like a State. I don't know if you've open now I know, but it makes the point that states strive to standardize 
you know, taxpayers and their wealth and their interactions. Uh, it's doing this, what the book describes is improving the legibility of taxpayer behavior, right? And wealth. So it can, it's more efficient to uh, impose taxes when you have a very clear picture of how wealth is moving and all of this. So yeah, one of the great powers of, again, crypto, right? Secret keeping or uh, yeah, keeping secrets basically through mathematics is it, it, it blinds that legibility function. And if you blind the legibility and we all become illegible to the state, then all of a sudden it can't prey on us as easily. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to me, like this is one of those tactical trade-offs that's so important is that through that blinding function, like it raises the cost for the state to come out and attack individuals in such an extreme way that like it can't actually function in the way that it functions today. Mm-hmm. And so like now we finally have had this ability to rein back in the power of a purse in a very dramatic and important way. Um, and what I think is really important is like if we actually had a just and magnanimous government that we loved and actually did do things that we liked, we'd willingly come out and say, yes, I'm happy to pay you my taxes in Bitcoin. I want to voluntarily participate in this. Mm. But we exist in a different world where violence is the inherent and the most important perspective of how we implement money in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, what's so important about, you know, this new territory that we're creating in the CypherNet is that violence is fundamentally banished. doesn't matter if you're a criminal or if you're the president of the United States. You can't hurt people using this system. It's just not available. And that's such a radical break from all of humanity. You know, every person that's came before us has had to have their wealth subjected to violent means. You know, like the only equivalent we really have is like, you putting a cash out in the forest for yourself that you're the only person that knows of. And there's a very extreme risk of you dying and losing that forever. Yeah. 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 Great point. Um, Okay. So I'll read one more, maybe two more excerpts here, but one to start and we're getting to, I think the, where the piece actually climaxes, you're right. Quote, statism is the codification of law through authority, which finds its power in violence. The cyphernet is the codification of law based upon mutual agreement about truth verified through crypto, rather authority based upon law. And you're going to say that crypto inverts Hobbes' dictum of sovereign power, which is, I may mispronounce this, auctoritas non veritas facit legem, which means authority, not truth, makes legitimacy, into Veritas non actoritas facit lajim. Truth, not authority, makes legitimacy. And I think this is just one of the most powerful ways to really look at Bitcoin. It's like the ultimate pragmatic truth. You know, again, we've we've mentioned these earlier, like self-ownership, voluntary trade creates value, inflation is theft. There's all these... I don't know if they're all axiomatic, but they're damn near uh, very hard to argue against, right? Like you own yourself. I own myself. We know that. We know inflation is theft. Uh, you know, we know energy is finite. So money should be finite. All of these things. Um, and Bitcoin is that. It's just like, this is now the authority, the truth. Like you, you trying to declare by fiat that you are the authority no longer works because this more powerful, pragmatic truth has entered the arena. 
And furthermore, like that pragmatic truth presented to you in a world where people are saying inflation is good for you. Right. You should want to pay your taxes. You won't want to own like it like it confounds language itself to such a place. And, and like one of the things that's helped me is realizing like I very much believe that Joe Biden sincerely believes that his tax plan will cost zero dollars. He, he sincerely <laughs> believes that, you know, and like this is one of the problems is that. We're dealing with these individuals that their own hubris and authoritarianism, they believe they can just bulldoze over fucking truth. And to be fair, they have been able to do that for a very long time. So when they encounter Bitcoin, of course, they think they can just bulldoze over. We got to backdoor it or whatever crap that they kind of declare about it. Because the thing is, is not only do they live in a world completely full of guile and lies, but like they fundamentally are those false nihilists who don't believe there is, there is no God, there's no reason, there, there's nothing to this world except for that raw power and money to go after. Right. So when they finally discover something that isn't about that, and that has a finality about its break with saying, hey, truth radically establishes itself, no matter what authority you are, I think most people just hit up against that and kind of glitch out and go like that just can't exist in this world. You know, like I'm president of the United States. I can bomb anybody I want. <laughs> well, you can't bomb Bitcoin out of existence. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's which will be problematic in the coming years. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, this is where we start grasping for words, right? Messianic. Like it, it's, you know, even. The absolute, I think the absolute is an important word too, right? Something we typically only associate with uh, something transcendent like God, like God is the absolute sovereign, something like that. But Bitcoin is an absolutely fixed supply, right? We've never had anything like mm-hmm. that. It's like something that, how do I put it in Miami this past weekend? It's the first man-made institution that no man himself can corrupt or change. So we've like, we've, created something beyond ourselves in a way or beyond our reach. You know, it's really, really staggering. Um, okay. I'll read one more except here. I think that just puts a little button on that. He said, by using crypto as sophisticated mimetic tool to act as a strategic bulk words against all statist imperialist apparatuses and all of their obtuse truths from which they create power. The cyphernet is the citadel of freedom from which new forms of truth can be produced and circulated. It is through this production that we are building the future means from which our form of politics will be born. And, you know, something Verveke said to me was he conceived of politics more in the platonic sense. I think it was Plato that said it was politics are the ethics of distributed cognition. So it's like politics are the ethics of the free market, something like that. Um, but that's not at all what we conceive of politics of today. It's much more, uh, was it Clausewitz that said, uh, war is the continuation of politics by other means. So we politics in the modern sense is very much that version. It's like, I'm trying to impose my willpower on you. And if you don't comply, mm-hmm. there will be violence, essentially. But by the emergence of Bitcoin... We get back to this original form of politics, which is like, how do we synthesize these disparate um, aggregations of willpower in a way that's harmonious? It becomes much more like an ethical system versus a system of, of violence and coercion. 
Yeah, I'm like the, these are sort of the these tensions that I think are really important in the production of how we understand Bitcoin as this metaphysical object it is uh, essentially because we now have this and it's accessible to all people and we can have confidence in it and all these other things. Uh, the like quote non political nature of Bitcoin actually unveils itself as being entirely political, mm. like and that wasn't a choice we made by nation states choosing to create fiat money and absolutely hammer fuck out of existence any nominal notion of what real market based mechanics look like. They're the ones that force the situation for Bitcoin to present itself you know, essentially as this messianic object against them. And it's because mm. of these fundamental crimes that are the very basis of the state. Mm. And to be very clear, like the issuance of fiat money has always had a relationship to war, you know, from, from the first greenbacks being issued. And I think it was 1863 specifically for the civil war. So the union could win. It has always been a relationship to war. And why we went to full fiat money was because when World War II came out, it was very clear that you can't finance a modern war, which is inherently reliant on huge amounts of energy, if you're doing it with gold. It just doesn't work because you can't abuse that ability to create something out of nothing mm. that has now consumed the entirety of the world as a form of politics, you know, like the the... I had a tweet just the other day saying essentially to the effect of that, like, we don't have to tolerate any of these absolutely idiotic and moronic experiments on the economy that these clueless morons are carrying out. Mm. You know, like we can look at the fact that 80% of dollars in existence today were created in the last two years. Like that's going to destroy the middle class and pretty much everything else in between. And it's fucking terrifying mm. because as much as people are pointing this out and talking to it, we have these talking heads that are so deep into their own corrupt game that they're there talking about it, sincerely believing that, hey, if we just give several billion dollars to the richest entities on the planet, they'll use that for good. Like, it, it, it's absolute madness. Right. And it's so exciting that instead of us needing to tolerate it and shake and be like, yeah, like, that's the truth, because we have nothing else we can say, we can go. Fuck you guys. Fuck everything that you people represent and all of the theft, guile, destruction, and violence that you people represent. We just don't have to do it anymore. Um, yeah. And I hope other people start to really understand that. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things I felt building not only in myself, but, you know, in you and John and all these other people we interact with, so that I think we're finally gaining the confidence and esteem to really understand what's going on here and how profoundly important it is. Um, and it's funny cause like, you know, we get in these Bitcoin conversations all the time and I've just been trying it out when people are like, so like, tell me like why Bitcoin's important. Like I'll just straight up be like, it's the messianic object that rescues humanity from all of the destruction that could very much be an existential threat to humanity. Like this is our one exit. And then they're like, Oh, okay. I, uh, I'll read up on it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> you really swing for the fences with that. I've, um, it's funny because that actual line you just delivered, anyone that's deep in Bitcoin has some flavor of that line. Like it's the ultimate good, right? It's the only hope. It's, 
it really is the light in the darkness kind of thing. And it all sounds hyperbolic when you're distant from it and you don't understand it. But the deeper you approach Bitcoin intellectually, the more obvious it is. Like there's literally no other choice. And it's not really a new idea. Part of this, again, is maybe back to the language. Bitcoin sounds ridiculous, right? The name Bitcoin, just like Bitcoin, like sounds small, tiny money that's magic on the internet. Like it sounds ridiculous. But what it really is, is just property that can't be broken, right? Inviolable property, which we've been talking about since the, whatever, the Magna Carta was signed in 1215. You know, it's been a long time. We've been talking about this principle, but we've never had it. We've never really created it and concretized it. Um, yeah, I'm like, you know, it, it's uh, like we had to get to this place where we could have this machine and like utilize these forms of math that are so complex and powerful. Like it just it wasn't possible even with the rudimentary, you know, you got to think that half of the entire war effort was dedicated towards breaking the enigma. Mm-hmm. You know, like the enigma is a rudimentary piece of shit for cryptography now. You know, like we could break that stuff with a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. So the fact now that, you know, SHA-256 is trying to guess, what is it? Something like it's like trying to find like a, a unique atom in the universe or some shit. Right. <laughs> like now we're in, we're engaged uh, with this kind of physics that's so important that like, Literal physics itself gives us the probable assurances that like trying to get a collision is nearly impossible, though we have actually created a shot 256 collision. Uh, It was just took like 12 years to do or some shit. And that was once. (laughs) Interesting. I didn't know that. You know, that's a great framing and that we're more deeply engaging with fundamental physics such that those laws natural law, actual natural law comes to govern our action more so than human generated law. Um, yeah. And I mean, like this is kind of the Spinozan marrying back to nature again. Like this is all natural shit. Like if we had the computational power to make Bitcoin 2000 years ago, we could absolutely do it. The mm-hmm. same physics apply to then as it does now. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important that when we look at this and we can say, hey, provably, we can say that trying to crack this is like trying to find, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's really important because now when we're in the year 3000, you know, like our children will be like, like, you know, that like dad understood that, like, you know, way out in the year 3000 that like we still couldn't break this cryptography easily. Like that guy must have been smoking some wild stuff. And in hindsight, it will all seem so obvious, right? What's crazy is to look back and be like, well, here's how we did it before Bitcoin. We all had these big institutions that ritually came together and everyone wore fancy clothes and everyone else tried to guess what these central bank high priests were going to say and do with the money supply. And every nation had their own paper that they were passing around. And like it was just scam on top of scam. And then what? Bitcoin emerged, just the single immutable database in the sky that maps onto reality. It's like, no shit. It completely destroyed all the bolt, the BS. It's going to be so obvious. I, either we are completely Yeah, I feel bad crazy. for people that don't see that. Yeah. Yeah. And like you, like we were saying offline, there was a period of time when I was tunneling down this rabbit hole that 
you know, especially this relates to Bitcoin's price largely. It's like I'm writing all these things about Bitcoin, saying it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, to use a crappy uh, joke. Um, but Bitcoin's price is at, I don't know, 8,000 bucks, 4,000 bucks. People are like, you're crazy. It's going to zero. But then, you know, fast forward 18, 24 months, the price is above 50K. And those same people are now like, hey, man, um, tell me more about this. What's going on? And um, yeah, I don't know. There's part of that self-education process where you have to push through like you feel crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think most people need to go through that barrier to get to the other side. Yeah, I think it's, it's a lot easier now, you know, like there because like there are crazy people out there like me who I can be like, hi, yes, like it's not insanity. It's it's real. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and this relates to the other essay that I have is that, uh, you know, true enlightenment is having the courage to think for yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and to, to really stop and look at what's going on. And, you know, and for me, that was one of the things was I had to look at Bitcoin, know the facts about it, see how it was operating. And also look at, you know, and one of the things that influenced me is I was like, look, like the evolution that has happened to drug markets here is like a really important innovation that can't be overstated. Mm. And for me, that was enough of an investment thesis at that point in time, mm. you know, uh, and from that, we've seen the growth continue outward and, and much farther beyond anywhere I expected it to be at this point in time, which is extremely exciting. Um, but yeah, like, I think it's really important because like this encounter with the truth uh, could be very difficult for some people. And I can see how like that can feel crazy because we've been taught all of these other things for so long that coming to realize none of it's true could be pretty difficult. Right. You know, so uh, I think that that is important because also while it seems obvious in the future, I think standing here right now being like, okay, magic internet money is actually going to save humanity from the virus and corruption that's clearly consuming all of us. Sounds a little outlandish, but like you said, as you get closer and closer to it, you're like, oh, shit, like this is real. Yeah. And I think like as you get closer and closer to it, there's eventual, I don't know, like some kind of event horizon that you hit where like you do feel crazy and you're like, oh, and like it gets big. Uh, and then I think kind of the final component of uh, like coming back from being crazy I actually think as like the process of like converting all of your wealth into Bitcoin and like sitting with that and like being cool with it. Yeah. And it, at least for me, I don't know if you've had this experience, but paradoxically has given me more peace of mind and equanimity than I've ever had, which you would think it would be the opposite. You're holding the most volatile asset as you know, the vast majority of your, your liquid net worth Sounds like it'd be a little bit unnerving, but it's the opposite. I'm just at peace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. Each time there's wild price swings, like my wife and I always, we always check in and it's kind of a joke. I'm like, hey, we're like down 15%. I'm like, do, like, do you feel anything? And she's like, uh-uh. Like, do you feel anything? And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> we're like, mm, I guess it's gone. You know, and I think to to me, like, uh, and I wish like more normies would understand this, like Bitcoin is savings because like the fundamental idea of it is, is like, instead of playing this investment bullshit shit show, mm -hmm. just like put your money there. It's safe. It'll accrue value over time. And like, once you have a steam in that process, 
I think that there's this real relief of like, oh, okay, like it's secure now. It's good. Like, you know, but it it's going to do what it does. A bank's not going to steal it. You know, I have it in cold storage. Uh, and I think that opens us up to like go out and do other things. And and for me personally, it allowed for me to start stepping more powerfully into more of my my radical dialogue, you know, which, uh, you know, like I'm afraid the state is going to hunt me down at some point in time for some of the outlandish things I say. And, and like that really used to scare me, you know, even back mm-hmm. when uh, my pre-Bitcoin days, when I was involved with leftist action kind of stuff, uh, I was I always had this very deep terror of the state coming and taking everything, destroying my life, depriving my family. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I know the other thing is like if the state comes and attacks me, like, man, I'm going to fuck them up. It's going to be really exciting because like I got a team of lawyers that gets activated. My wife has money to go spread to people, you know, like. It's awesome because like now there's this whole war chest that's committed in behind me. And when the state's like, you, you're a criminal. You can't use that. We're just like, ha ha, fuck you. You can't do anything about it. You know, the, the meme people will attempt to save me from the gulags, but I don't think it'll happen. All right. So the next essay we we're going to talk about was this one you recommended from the very famous philosopher, I think. When I studied philosophy in college, which I didn't study a lot of, this was our main focus, was Immanuel Kant. And this short essay is titled, What is Enlightenment? And I'll open with the opening excerpt. So Kant writes, quote, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed nonage. Nonage is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. This knowledge is self-imposed if its cause lies not in lack of understanding, but in indecision and a lack of courage to use one's own mind without another's guidance. Dare to know, saper aude, have the courage to use your own understanding is therefore the motto of the enlightenment. Kind of gets back to what we were saying about Bitcoin. You've got to dare to know. If you're ever going to, you know, see the proverbial light. And you also need to have the courage to use your own understanding. And I think so many of us have encountered, you know, hey, check out this Bitcoin thing. And no, that's dumb. It can't work. Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And this is that very important, critical place to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe my own understanding of that this has fixed units and that economics in an Austrian sense over the idea of a modern monetary sense is the real legitimacy. And using my own thought and praxis from first principles, this makes much more sense than any other money system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. And I this reminds me of something else that Bitcoin has helped me see more clearly is that we as human beings are very programmable, right? That's what we're doing in dialogues. We're doing when we're reading and learning, we're, we're basically architecting our own software. But if we don't take responsibility for our own programmability, then it seems like we are much more likely to fall victim to others that would seek to program us to their own ends, to their own interests which is what we would largely call propaganda, right? That's what state propaganda is. And I mentioned to you, I was traveling recently and just 
the amount of, you know, get vaxxed signage everywhere all the time was just mind blowing. It was on everything, it was every surface, every screen, just in your face, like, um, sub, not, sub, it's not even a subliminal message. It's a very overt message, but just through repetition, just beating this mm-hmm. into people's head. Um, it's a bit concerning. Like if you don't take responsibility that you are programmable, I think you're much more vulnerable to things like that. Absolutely. And you know, the, the COVID has been such a, a, a beautiful example for all these things going on. I mean, what it actually is, is quite horrific and horrendous, but it points so actively towards all of these things. Like I, I've, I found myself deeply concerned early on that, uh, why wasn't utilizing education like the primary component versus the propaganda? And, and it points back again to, to this idea that, uh, you know, the state wants to keep us in nonage, which is the, the idea of being a youth still. You're incapable of making your own decisions. Mm. And around the vax is, is uh, this is a really important thing that, you know, now people are subjectively saying, hey, I'm younger or I have kids or whatever choices they have to not be vaxxed. Instead of that being a personal choice that can be respected, that people came to their own conclusions using their own courage, people very much want to have a deep authoritarian response of saying, well, you know, fuck these people. They shouldn't get to participate in society with me. Um, And one of the things I find the most heartbreaking is, uh, you know, you try to be like, hey, watch out. There's like some overtures towards this and Nazism. People are like, no, there's no relationship between these at all. And like, Literally, the policy of the Holocaust was carried out through a national health plan of the Nazis. You know, like it and look like I get they're not 100% tangential, but like denying that there is a relationship there is really dangerous. And this is sort of the idiotic place that we're in is that we have gotten so authoritarian with our decrees that most of us, even though we can kind of understand a lot of this stuff about masks and vaccinations and the risks, that unless someone else is telling us to do that, you know, we're, we're making the choice to do that. And the very same thing can be said with fiat money. You know, people say, get your money in your 401k, get your IRA, say, you know, all this bullshit. When the truth is at the end of the day, if we use our own logic and look at what's going on, we know that inflation's not transitory, that owning nothing's going to be miserable, and that being totally compliant to the state means that we're not even people anymore, but we're something else. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. One thing I've been reciting lately that I hope frames it up nicely is if your effective tax rate is 100%, you are by definition a slave because all the fruits of your labor go to the tax authority. I mean, that's what a slave is, right? You work for someone else completely. Um, so by extension, if your effective tax rate is 50%, then you're 50% a slave. So it's all about like figuring out where you fall on that spectrum and trying to optimize for sovereignty. Um, But I guess the pain just hasn't become pronounced enough yet for people to seek this enlightenment that Kant is describing. Yeah, you know, and and I'd also point out very much like trying to convert anybody to any kind of religious creed. Like there's a whole series of people that are going to be uninterested, you know, and like we're uh, I can already see in 2025, inflation will be at, you know, 50% per annum monthly and, you know, milk's already $30 and eggs are $45. And I'll tell people, hey, 
get on Bitcoin, this thing's the answer. And they'll go, no, like the terrorists and the child molesters <laughs> use that. Okay, go back to using, you know, the U.S. dollar that has never had anything to do with those things. Yeah. And it's just what it is. Yeah. And it's because they don't have the courage to think for themselves. And this is really gets to the root of the term fiat, right? It's, it's, you're telling someone what to do by this, what fiat is, right? The original, what was it in the Bible? Fiat lux. I think God said, let there be light, Mm -hmm. right? It was like the original decree that created reality. But now you have human beings by fiat trying to declare other realities. And it's essentially man attempting to play God. And if you don't know that, that yeah, wherever it, you're not going to make it. Well, I'm like, it's just funny, man. That like we're we're like engaged back in like all of these classical things. Like, can man be God? Like, let's just like try to build AI that can destroy us. Like, let's yeah. build nuclear weapons that can wipe out the whole. Like, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And it's funny because when you like point out like, hey, this shit's crazy. They're like, no, your Bitcoin's crazy. And I'm like, fuck you with your nuclear arsenal. You know, like that. That's insanity to me. That quote, uh, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it despises those who speak it comes to mind. It's like the deeper we get in. Yeah, this. you know, and like, that's what Bitcoin will become eventually. And I actually think that like, uh, like Bitcoin reveals its full power, like when, you know, like the, the global UN communist new monetary policy comes down and is like, destroy all Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. And like now it actually opens all the way up. Hmm. Yeah, it it is really a lot to get your head around um, because we're really not, again, when you reduce things down to their axiom, it's like very obvious which side is telling the truth. It's like, we're just saying that you own yourself and you should be free basically it's like you choose it's like you know that includes what i'm saying to you like you don't even have to believe what i'm saying like go and figure it out for yourself you know check check it right don't trust verify um interesting that again under the putting all that under the rubric of bitcoin just has a lot of people dismissing it at the surface just like no not for me you know um Crazy. Okay. We'll come back at, you know, 250K or something. (laughs) I'll read another little excerpt here. Kant goes on to say, quote, laziness and cowardice are the reasons why such a large part of mankind gladly remain minors all their lives long after nature has freed them from external guidance. They are the reasons why it is so easy for others to set themselves up as guardians. It is so comfortable to be a minor. If I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Welcome to modernity. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and like, that's exactly what's going on. We have medical science telling us what is and is not healthy for our bodies. You know, we, we have religious priests that are telling us that we're supposed to do these things that governments tell us, you know, and it, it's a real lack of responsibility and laziness. Well, how's Bitcoin work? Fucking read. There's plenty of stuff out there. Why does it do that? You know? And like, 
it's funny because I I was at first off- offended by this, but both Heidegger and Strauss are like very pedantic about like, look, like people are really stupid. Now there's very few people that actually think about things anymore. And I'm realizing that's part of why we're in this world today, you know, is that when approached with these truths, uh, like instead of in classic age, like absorbing this truth and like having it reconfigure it, we've reduced ourselves to all of this sophist dialogue where it's all about manipulating and contorting and changing. And that's exactly what's going on with government money right now is, you know, they're, they're telling us these constant lies, which maybe have threads of truth in them. Mm -hmm. And like those threads are what these people cling to and actually believe while marrying all of their lies through it as a justification for why it's okay. And it is frankly because of both laziness to actually think all the way through the concepts Mm -hmm. and a fundamental cowardice, which I want to absolutely honor. This place is fucking terrifying. Like the Mm -hmm. state can just black bag your ass and disappear you. That Mm -hmm. shit's scary, Mm -hmm. you know, but we can't allow for that to control us as human beings any longer. Right. And now that we have this thing, you know, um, the, I have to admit there are parts of the idea of matridom that, that excite me of the state coming to crush me and saying, great, you don't get anything now. In fact, this thing's turned against you now. Wow. I, have you written or talked about that much? How you've designed this, your life to where if you know someone comes after you that all these sequence of events um start to transpire to protect you or serve your interests have you detailed any of that oh i have an essay that's probably two-thirds of the way finished you know the the other is is because uh a close intellectual partner of mine he he's involved with a lot of this more on on the the coding side uh but essentially like this is a dead man keys praxis and while it's rudimentary at this point in time and that like i need people to make triggers on it um it ultimately does work in that rudimentary fashion through multi-sig and i'm much more excited now that specifically we have taproot that you know nobody can tell what is multi-sig or single sig now which is a really important development um but yeah i should probably write more in detail about that i feel like i get so lost in esoteric philosophical land i hardly (laughs) ever talk about the nuts and bolts which i should do more of well, yeah, I think it would be valuable to a lot of people, um, you know, including myself. I'd just like to understand how you're thinking about it. Um, I guess I think that I need to study more about like what Rothbard's life and things like this. People that were engaging in intellectual criticism of the state, like like what had he clearly lived a full life and everything was fine. So. Um, I guess I'm just curious, like what level of risk we are actually taking and just having these very open conversations about ideas that uh, seem very protected under the freedom of speech, but perhaps we are taking on some risk that we don't understand or that I don't fully understand. I'm watching a lecture series on uh, Strauss's book tyranny right now and and it's really interesting because in his analysis of tyranny uh he points out that in uh oh shit which one is it essentially what he's trying to point out is that like anybody who's involved in a sincere dialogue with a tyrant 
like has to very much like walk this edge mm-hmm. that uh, like if they go into full political dialogue, like they, they inherently endanger themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that like within philosophical speech, there's this sort of almost encrypting that happens to like mm-hmm. say the secret openly, mm-hmm. but to allow for that form of logic to kind of come from it. Uh, I'm only partway through the series right now, but it's really good. And Strauss is somebody who I haven't, put much time into so so i'm excited to have found this and uh you know for for me it's always like i feel like for each step i take forward philosophically like 10 new branches open up in different oh, yeah. areas and i'm like well shit like where do i even go at this point yeah 100 no that's a great point i feel like i'm maybe just tacitly or subconsciously trying to walk that knife edge myself because ultimately this is just about human freedom right which even for the tyrant who thinks he's on top of the world he doesn't see that he's just you know sawing off the proverbial branch on which he rests to some extent he's he's inhibiting human potential through his acts of tyranny or coercion and you know i again we talked about this reflection earlier between man and tool i think the the mass psychosis that is um political statism it's the, the tyrant is in fact impacted by that as well, right? They are drawn into this psychosis that this is the ultimate thing to do. It's like to be on top of this hierarchy, not seeing the hierarchy that could exist absent coercion, right? We could be all just be much richer, wealthier, more happy, more satisfied, all of these things um, by, you know, removing this coercive element of coercion from civilization. Indeed. And I think one other thing that's important there is, uh, you know, like we exist in a very unique and special time and that tyranny, as it was classically understood, is, is nothing near the kind of panoptic totalitarianism that we've encountered. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really worry about is uh, with these forms of totalitarianism, specifically them merging up with panoptic surveillance technologies and artificial intelligence i'm afraid they're building a machine that's far outside of their control that that will have an objective of destroying humanity because it can't watch everything Mm -hmm. and so it feels that there's some inherent threat that it needs to always attack Mm -hmm. and frankly i think uh like i think at some point in time there will be people inside of the states in powerful positions that will actually like understand bitcoin as you and i understand it and like, they're going to flip out. Like, mm-hmm. they're just going to be like, this thing endangers the state in its entirety. And like, we must go at this full board or destroy it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is another potential. And I specifically see this one here in the United States because of just the way that uh, both our history and our monetary policies happen is that essentially like states as their own sovereign apparatuses rise up and say we reject the fed dollar Mm -hmm. we accept bitcoin we're going to go through a soviet style dissolution and furthermore we're going to open our economy in the classic liberalism that we used to understand it as you come here you interact with bitcoin free market you know the government will tax you based upon you know uh, actual transactional taxations as opposed to whatever your income is Mm -hmm. and it reformulates everything uh that's my hopeful vision but I'm I'm so uh, pessimistic about things that like 
I don't know. I've already sort of accepted that like this ends with a hyper war where like the state suspends all laws and just tries to like hunt down and destroy Bitcoiners. But, you know, uh, I hope that's not true. Yeah, that is definitely extremely bleak. Um, I share the hopeful vision, uh, maybe with the added wrinkle that I think states ultimately just have to acquire it, if nothing else, as an insurance policy against its success, but perhaps even more uh, unknowingly, they may just buy it to try and advance their own financial interests, right? They they suffer from all these unfunded pension liabilities and you know all the fiat uh, debt problems that all economic actors suffer from, states suffer from them most acutely. So it seems to me like mm-hmm. Bit- Bitcoin will become a logical allocation for them. And then my hope would be that it has, in the same way that the game theory of Bitcoin operates at every level, individual, institutional, nation state, I would hope that the uh, the the personal transformation that it's inducing at the individual level could also be broadcast at other levels, if that makes sense. So maybe like mm-hmm. Texas or somebody starts buying Bitcoin and then all of a sudden they become the most attractive governance, government government in the world. They're rich. You know, they're attracting a lot of talent, a lot of people. Their economy is booming. Other states see this and they go, hey, we can adopt that model. And coercion just kind of gets phased out through this, this Darwinian process. I mean, I, I would love that. I, I you know, I just have my my eyes set on this darkness because if you get a chance to read that other essay, The Sovereign Subject and Crypto Power, I go into this and that like I I think that ontologically, the way that sovereignty functions, specifically with having the availability of states of emergency as as fiat decrees that they can make, yeah. I think that it is inherently inevitable that they will come headlong into a fight with this. Uh, and the only method I see is just a full capitulation of saying, hey, open open market economy, Bitcoin can be accepted and utilized by people. Maybe we issue shitcoins still, but we openly accept it. Uh, and frankly, after both COVID uh, and just the utter insanity of our monetary policy, uh, I just have a really hard time accepting that like the state when encountered with this and like the logicalness of it, it'll just be like, oh yeah, like I, I very much expect a response similar to coronavirus, not, you know, for instead of us logically being like, hey, check it out. Like there's a new disease out in the world. We got to mm-hmm. figure out how to use, deal with it logically. It's just going to be a full court press to figure out how to destroy the thing. Mm. Uh, but again, I'm absolutely open to being wrong about this because that future is fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And I guess we have to just hope for the best, prepare for the worst, right? Which is exactly what Bitcoin is. Right. Yeah, well said. Um, okay, I want to read another excerpt here. So Kant writes... This enlightenment requires nothing but freedom, and the most innocent of all that may be called freedom. Freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters. Now I hear the cry from all sides. Do not argue, the officer says. Do not argue, drill. The tax collector. Do not argue, pay. The pastor. Do not argue, believe. Only one ruler in the world says, argue as much as you please, but obey. We find restrictions on freedom everywhere, but which restriction is harmful to enlightenment? Which restriction is innocent and which advances enlightenment? I reply, the public use of one's reason must be free at all times, and this alone can bring enlightenment to mankind. You know, I talked to 
with Max Hillebrand about this for a long time. We went through Rothbard's book, Ethics of Liberty. And that's it, man. That's our gift. We have reason. We can tell and believe stories and organize ourselves according to what is reasonable. And again, it's one of those very simple things. It's like, just let people do that. And everything will be optimized. Like, just let people do what is reasonable and things will be optimized. Um, sounds very, I don't know, like kind of utopian in a way, but it is very, it is very much that simple. Like if you want to create the most balance among uh, an antagonistic species, then you let each one, each node in the network use its reason to sort itself out. Because once you introduce coercion to the equation, you try to attack someone or force someone to do something, it seems obvious to me that it creates negative externalities, right? Like they're going to seek vengeance or they're going to seek to backstab you or undercut you or do anything. And these things propagate across history. Whereas if you just use your reason instead of coercion, things would be more balanced. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, and he's pedantic about pointing out this idea of public of using your public reason, because like it, it's this sort of dialogue that we're having with ourselves that we present publicly to show what we're thinking mm -hmm. and trying to lead through that thinking. And I would say that, that the, the performative thinking, if you will, was what Satoshi produced with the white paper was him saying, Hey, look, here's my logic. Here's my public form of reasoning for why this should work. And people read through it and they said, wow, that, yeah. And to this day, it's still functioning off of those same principles because of how that works using one's reasoning publicly, you know, because if, you know, a, a great example is the inflation bug that happened very early on with Bitcoin that broke everything. You know, like this was a place where that public reasoning broke down. But again, through the public discourse and the forms of what was going on, a patch was deployed very quickly and we were able to move forward. Mm. You know, if it was the state, we would deny that there was any inflation and, and we'd suppress anybody who was trying to talk about, it, you know. And uh, and again, like this is why I think now. it's metaphysics. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm like, to me, this is why it's metaphysical is like all of the conclusions we come back to are these like super fucking basic, logical, core, yeah. natural things. And they're only so radical today because like we live in this absolute crazy world full of guile and lies and misleading and mm -hmm. all of it. Yeah, the founding fathers, if they were alive today would all be Bitcoiners, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, this, it's just like, there wasn't that the I, idea I mean, Hamilton might be a shitcoiner, because, but. Who, which one? Oh, just Hamilton might be a shitcoiner, because <laughs> I could see he would want to have access to credit and debt, which is totally fair. And there are ways to make monetary theory operate on the state level. I just think at this point in time, uh, like there, there's a really great quote from uh, the wealth of nations. And I remember I came across it because Krugman quoted it and it's hilarious because he started the quote immediately. Like the quote starts with saying like using prudent judgment and ethics and banking, like allows for fiat money to like sail through the world in this unique way. That's powerful and important. 
But like that first phrase, judiciously, he omitted from it. And I was like, you motherfucker, like that's the problem. Fiat money isn't issued judiciously. And that modern monetary theory isn't used to actually give money to all these great public programs, you fucking moron. It's used to make all these rich assholes richer. And like that disingenuousness of how the monetary system is used is why I think fiat money won't be able to exist in the future. Not because it's so shitty that it can exist, but that people have such a horrific mistrust of it that it won't be able to exist. Mm, interesting. Yeah. It, gosh, it, there's some blurred lines there too, because a lot of people today want to blame the rich, right? Like, Oh, it's the billionaire's oh, yeah. fault. Tax steal more from Jeff Bezos or steal more from Elon Musk. That'll fix the problem. Not seeing like that. The stealing is the fucking problem. Like if you, well, it's, you know, it's one of those things that like most of these people, you go, look, if we just stole all the billionaires money, like problem solved. Right. And they're like, yeah. And you're like you fucking moron that like funds the government for like eight days or something like that doesn't <laughs> fix anything. Right. You know, and like, and I get it. Like it, 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 this is that same laziness that, you know, relates back to the essay is that people don't want to think about the fact that, you know, uh, mm. The reason that these people got wealthy is they created things in the world that are of actual value that, you know, people utilize and are important. Yeah. Uh, and furthermore, because like we've all been given this dialogue repeatedly that like the government loves you and it just wants to kiss you and provide you with all of the great things in life. And it's just not true. Right. And, 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 I, and again, I want to apologize. It sucks. I, like, I wish it was true. I wish the government loved us and provided and, and wanted to be great to us. Mm-hmm. It's just not how it is. Yeah. Well, <sighs> inflation itself is a product of this intellectual laziness or unthinkingness. And that, what, we hit the skids and we're like, oh, people are short on money. What should we do? Oh, let's just print more money. Right. And it's not like we've only learned the those lessons once. We have learned that dozens of times across human history, but it seems like we forget every few generations, like three generations seems to be kind of the magic number. It was like, you know, Genghis Khan conquered the whole empire. And then by generation three, it was starting to collapse. They say a family fortune is lost in three generations. Typically Uh, the fiat currency inflation fiasco in France came three generations after the the prior fiat currency inflation. And it's like, I don't know, it's almost like we self-deceive through fiat. There's, we want to believe that we can just like tell people what to do or tell the market what to do, but that does like fundamentally does not work. And yet we can't ever see the hubris of authoritarianism. You know, like that, that's the total hubris of authoritarianism is that again, these people totally believe like, we're going to use fiat money to like issue all this money for, you know, new infrastructure projects and all of America's rich. And it's great. Mm. Like this doesn't address the fundamental mathematical error that is made at the very bottom of this. Like you literally, Oh, we'll just like make it up and no affect. Well, what about all those other dollars out there? Like, how does it affect that? Right. Well, if we adjust CPI so that it doesn't involve food or meat anymore, it <laughs> works, you know, cause TVs are at a stable price. Like, it's just all this sort of lobotomized, half-assed logic. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, like, that's the funniest part, too, is that, like, these very powerful economists and bankers that, you know, move the worlds of finance, like, this is how their brains work. 
you know, and and it's really dangerous because at the bottom, there are these inherent errors that are based upon, um, I think it is a combination of both cowardice and laziness because I think the laziness is exuded from their denial of it. And I think the cowardice is the curiosity that they might have gets quelched immediately. Cause you know, if I'm Jamie diamond, why do I want to think Bitcoin's good? I'm already super fucking rich. Right. <sighs> yeah. And it, hmm. it's. Hmm. Bitter pill to swallow, honestly, because it seems to me, and I again talked about this for a long time with Max, there's just no way to fix this shit except Bitcoin. Like, so long as we can print money or manipulate money or steal, that human beings are just too self deceiving. Like, we'll just rationalize ways to do that and new reasons to do that. And we'll come up with Keynesian economics and all this intellectual masturbation to try and apologize and support this like guaranteed to be self-destructive pattern of behavior. We know you're going to print money and violate property rights. You're going to disintegrate society. There's no way around that. There's no historical evidence. There's nothing. It's a priori, right? You start violating the relationship between people and their assets. They're going to lose their fucking mind, right? You're talking about invading our our notion of territoriality, right? This is something that's sub-intellectual. It's like we are primates, mammals trying to reproduce. We need territory and objects and wealth to support family. You start violating that in people, they're going to become animals, right? So it's almost I mean, like- We already are animals. Look out at what's going on. There's reason that people are shooting each other in the street and stabbing each other and this kind of shit. And it's because we've been reduced to this animality. Yes. You know, what the, the state steals everything from us and they're like, oh, we'll give you these food stamps in return. You know, mm-hmm. like it, people are fucking angry and they don't know where to direct that anger, you know? And, and on the same side, like, uh, you know, like our anger is one that that is logical and, and like we see everything that's going on, you know? Uh, the anger of others tends to be misdirected be, because of how much propaganda and manipulation is going on. Right. You know, and like the, the other thing is, is, Yes, we're coming out of this extremely dark age where, you know, violence has pretty much ruled infinitely for a long time. But now we have this object, you know, like I speak about the messianism of it, uh, not because I want this crazy religious thing, but like I very sincerely believe that like this is a product that fundamentally can change human relations for the better. And that by accessing those better relationships, there's this infinite bloom that can occur. Because now we have these assurances that we were never given before so we can try new things, you know, like right. I'm so excited to, to see how intergenerational wealth is going to build and expand itself based upon these new economic modules that are extremely powerful, you know, and that we will actually get family dynasties once again, because the money isn't so fucked up, it can be stole from everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. New economic modules, as you call them, but really just implementing these ancient ideas that we've we've found yeah. and discovered, but we could never quite get them to stick. It's like we, you know, the, I guess the United States is arguably the best implementation of these ideals we ever had, right? The most decentralized government. Um, 
the closest shot we've ever made. And that's why I've been arguing that Bitcoin, in the sense of foundational American principles, is American as fuck, right? It is, it's got rule of law, it's got private property rights, and it is honest money, like all baked into this, this economic module, as you as you called it. Um we need that. Otherwise, we're always going to give in to this decivilizing tendency of, oh, just tax Bezos, just tax Elon more, just steal from this guy, steal from that girl. Like it's constantly this shell game of theft that completely dissolves society over and over and over again. We just keep repeating the same pattern. Well, and I'd point out that this this pattern's at an apex now, too, because like we're not just talking about, you know, steal from the wealth, society evolved, we go, go back to live in the forest for a while and come back. Like, no, we're we're talking about the state has now entered into, you know, and COVID is a perfect example. It's pretty clear this thing was leaked from a fucking lab, you know, whoever wants to say whatever they want to. But the one of the things that pisses me off so much about this, like the fact that the state is actively involved in developing bioweapons that can kill all of fucking humanity, and we're not outraged. And it's really, it, it's very extremely problematic because it's a very small cadre of people that want all this shit and that there are billions of people on the planet that have no interest whatsoever in these weapons of war. And we finally have the ability to fight back against the modern state by, they, they have made their debt cycle so large that shit, 3% of global population gets on board with this thing and and you know the the entire Brenton Woods monetary system is going to blow itself up, and they got to sell off all their fucking weapons of war for scrap metal, so that you know we can build space elevators and other cool shit that the new world is going to give us. You think we're that close? Just three percent global adoption would send us into hyper Bitcoinization type event. Yeah, well, uh, depends on what three percent. And I think it's very important to recognize that that all major revolutions that have happened throughout human history have been led by, you know, essentially, quote unquote, the elite. You know, there's a reason that George Washington was, you know, the richest man in America when he made the stand that he did. Mm -hmm. Um, And which, again, you know, like think of how badass that was, you know, like the, like the richest man in America who didn't really need to do anything, decided to get up on his horse and lead an entire militia military against, you know, when, when the Hessens first came and were assembled for the, the first battle, like that is the largest standing army that was assembled within 200 years. Wow. So they were literally going up against the most powerful army that had ever been formed in centuries hmm. and they won, you know? Mm. And like, I actually think, as this plays out for us, um, you know, like, like I essentially do think that we will have a Soviet style dissolution and Texas probably will become, you know, like the, the, the lone star state for Bitcoin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as that process unfolds, uh, people are going to kind of rise to the cause and the glory of it, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I think Sailor's a great example and he's already seen it. You know, the dude was already a billionaire. It's not it's it's not like there was a whole lot more for him to win. Right. But he saw that there was a legacy of glory that could actually get opened by helping being a person that pushed this into the area of the world it needs to be. And I think we're going to see more people like Sailor come up, you know? Yeah. Because, like, imagine what happens if Elon Musk just turns completely against the fiat system and starts railing against it. His yeah. wealth is really important, but his voice is more important. Right. It's an excellent point. It's almost as if Bitcoin inspires us to step into our unique role in history. You know, I mean, I just 
just speaking from my personal experience, it's like I've gone from this place was, you know, we talked about it offline earlier, just kind of unfulfilling, whatever, going through the motions. But now it's like I'm really, and I felt like the, apart from the world, the part was just like the world was this thing happening outside of me. And I had my own small participation with it, but it didn't feel like I could do much about it. But now just stepping into Bitcoin, it's like you see history as a live event, right? It's actually unfolding your decisions. Uh, at least contribute to the course that it will take and the contours that will it will form. Um, it's very inspiring to to live that type of life uh, versus the the fiat life where you're just like I don't know I'm just going to work and doing what I need to do and paying bills and then dying. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, and I actually think that that's more important than the monetary and wealth aspect of it. And I think that that's the thing that really triggers a lot of us who just like put all of our wealth into Bitcoin is, is that there is this inherent and fundamental understanding that like we are participating in one of, if not the most important historical process that has happened to humanity. Mm-hmm. And we're gifted enough to participate in it, you know? And, and I think that those unique contributions that we get to have, like I very sincerely believe that like, and this is the whole idea of crypto mm-hmm. is like, like the, the real secret is, is like, you get to see this halo of God that is around this thing and not, not because he is it or anything, but because he speaks through it and he speaks to you uniquely through mm. it. And that you, through your own understanding of Bitcoin, come to understand the world in a different way, you know, like, yes. uh, uh, like Joel with untapped growth. I think it's extraordinary the way that his understanding of Bitcoin has influenced his ideas of these sustainable agriculture and how we can totally remake our food systems. You know, right. same thing with Brandon Quidam with mycelium and the way that yeah. Bitcoin's like this decentralized network. It's so important because the way that once we see that and we see we can contribute to it and that we can explain it to other people, you know, I think that is a true transcendental experience that matters a lot more than just the money because we get to participate in the glory of re-exposing the world to what it means to have truth once again as a core yeah. praxis of what it means to be human. Yeah, amen to that, man. It's like that has been the big shift in my life. Is like I've opened myself to what I will would term the voice of God. Like I'm trying to listen to the you know your conscience, whatever word. I'm not trying to get religious, really, but that deepest thing hard, inside but- you, right? I call God. I don't know what call it whatever you want i don't care (laughs) this amalgamation of freedom truth and love is what i'm roughly calling it now to open yourself up to that really calls you into this highest and best life for yourself like and and the and the world outside you will start to just open in ways you could have never imagined before so and all of this is connected to bitcoin somehow so there is something really deep here about Improving our relationship with truth improves ourselves, improves our world. And therefore, we should have righteous anger towards statism. You know, one of the things my pastor told me is like, righteous anger is that which is directed at resolution. If you're just mad and you're, you know, just calling someone a name or not adding, not doing anything constructive, that's bad anger. That's useless anger. That's hurting you. It's hurting others, et cetera. But if you take that energy and channel it towards a resolution that's viable, that's righteous anger, which is the type of anger that is, um, I don't know, pastor approved at least. So I feel good about that. 
Well, on that note, I'd like to take a detour to point out that that righteous anger, I believe, is the same thing that has been so pejoratively labeled as Bitcoin toxicity. You know, it, mm. it's not that that quote toxicity. And, you know, I'll I'll admit there are some individuals that get a little too uh, crass with the dialogue and comments that they want to make. But that righteous anger is a real problem. Like, look, like Bitcoin's doing all of these things. Ethereum's a fun project that Vitalik thought up and that he fiat made the number of units him and all his buddies got. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, that's pretty much how most shitcoin projects work. And look, like maybe you can do these cool DeFi things that you're doing. That's great. What I'm pissed off about is stop telling people that bullshit is money and confusing them because this is a metaphysical object that was delivered to us of great importance. While your shitcoin project might do something in that world, it's not this vehicle of savings and, frankly, of metaphysical truth that is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So just, like, knock it off with that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, there's only one truly decentralized asset. And... That is Bitcoin, but that word decentralized, it's very opaque to a lot of people. But that's the whole well, this is part of all the shit coinery and, and utilizing and manipulating language in such a way, you know, like mm-hmm. the and you know, to reduce myself to crassness. Like something I tell people is look, like my problem with Ethereum is that if I throw Vitalik off a building and I've shorted Ethereum, I'm gonna make a lot of motherfucking money. <laughs> if if I throw Jameson Lop off a building. Uh, that's just a tragedy. You know, we've just we just lost somebody that that made significant work for us and it didn't affect the price at all. Right. Uh, and like this, and to go back to the first essay and my opening point, my hypothesis about this being a tool of war is these are important things to think about. If your crypto project founder is a known person, it means I can show up at their house, you know, with pictures of them engaged in sexually deviant behavior that I can say, hey, if you don't want this leaked all over the internet, please put this zero day in your fucking code. (sighs) And this is the kind of shit I think is really fucking important that people step back and be responsible enough to think through is, is there somebody that is a real security hole to your shitcoin project? Because I guarantee there is. Guaranteed. Uh, Okay, I'll try... To arc this back to the Kant essay. So <laughs> I'll read an excerpt here. He's again, we're back on the topic of freedom and human reason. It says, quote, but should a society of ministers, say a church council, have the right to commit itself by oath to a certain unalterable doctrine in order to secure perpetual guardianship over all its members and through them over the people? I say that this is quite impossible. Such a contract concluded to keep all further enlightenment from humanity is simply null and void, even if it could, even if it should be confirmed by the sovereign power, by parliaments and the most solemn treaties. An epoch cannot conclude a pact that will commit succeeding ages, prevent them from increasing their significant insights, purging themselves of errors and generally progressing in enlightenment. Um, pragmatic truth must continually be discovered, cannot be dictated, right? We can't say this is the way forever, but there's a paradox here because here we are advocating Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin has perfected this 21 million and it's mapped onto these axioms of existence. So how do you, 
I don't disagree. Like, I still believe that about Bitcoin because again, it's something beyond us in a way, like we're this metaphysical economic module, whatever you want to call it. But how do we square that with what Kant's saying here, which is that you can't ever typically do that. You want to always have, uh, I guess, inquiry as part and parcel to the, the social institution. Uh, this is great because this actually relates immediately to why, you know, my website is crypto sovereignty and not Bitcoin sovereignty. Mm. Uh, look, like there could be some core error in Bitcoin somewhere, you know, some problem with the crypto, something, some old buffer overflow bug anywhere. So it's not guaranteed. It seems to be, you know, from everything we've seen and all the ways we've poked and prod, the probabilities and all of the things line up, but it's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed in the same way that the fiat authority of a declaration is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And these two things to be separated are extremely important because in the same way with Bitcoin, we do have ways to develop and upgrade the protocol if through that public discourse, we are all in agreement about it. Mm-hmm. In the exact same way that when the inflation bug came up, there was a public discourse that was abated very quick, but that this patch needed to be deployed and it was because of the problems with it. So very much like in the essay, if we were to say that the core protocol was an immediate agreement that had no fundamental way to be changed, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin would have died very near after birth because of such a bug. But we're not fixed in that same way. Mm -hmm. And these tiny little points are extremely important because that's one of the things I think is really important about Bitcoin. It is not guaranteed. That is very, very important. Because it is something else. It is a probability that's very close to a guarantee, but it mm. is fundamentally different from a guarantee. Mm. And that's because we're, again, engaged in this field of physics as opposed to legality. Right. Yeah, that's well said. And that possibility for adaptation is what gives it this ultimate structural integrity in a way, right? That If there's a bug identified, we can fix it. So... Um, all right. and, and I'd say furthermore, however, the actual praxis that is cryptography of speaking and understanding through secrets, that's a larger uh, philosophical axiom that can continually de- be developed through the secrecy and the exchange thereof. Yeah, good point. I want to I'll read the last passage in this essay because I want to be respectful of your time here. Quote, but only the man who is himself enlightened, who is not afraid of shadows and who commands at the same time a well-disciplined and numerous army as guarantor of public peace. Only he can say what the sovereign of a free state cannot dare to say. Argue as much as you like and about what you like, but obey. Thus we observe here as elsewhere in human affairs in which almost everything is paradoxical, a surprising and unexpected course of events. A large degree of civic freedom appears to be of advantage to the intellectual freedom of the people, yet at the same time, it establishes insurmountable barriers. A lesser degree of civic freedom, however, creates room to let the free spirit expand to the limits of its capacity. Nature then has carefully cultivated the seed within the hard core, namely the urge for and the vocation of free thought. And this free thought gradually reacts back on the modes of thought of the people, and men become more and more capable of acting in freedom. At last, free thought acts even on the fundamentals of government and the state, 
finds it agreeable to treat man who is now more than a machine in accord with his dignity. I mean, that's powerful, but I, it's, it's, I don't know the, the, the general thought I have about it is there's some almost like natural course of events that had to take place to get us, as we kind of said earlier in the conversation to this point of Bitcoin that we needed all of the, these violations of property rights, these multiple lessons and self-deceptions and um, all of these issues to get to this point where we can actually just live in freedom, right? To live in liberty at an individual level. Yeah, we, we had to go, you know, the, this was the only concourse it could have take, taken because we needed to make all of those mistakes beforehand. And furthermore, we needed to get to this place of such deep darkness that starting to speak truth was this radical new thing mm. that as we're doing it more and more, it's affecting and expanding upon us. And I think that uh, we're in the embryonic stage of once we all do kind of finally get this real totality of courage to stand up, like I ultimately think it manifests itself as as Schmidt would say, the political and to, to mm. really distinguish the political from politics and that the political is activating the true human nature that is the political, which is the self-ownership of ourselves and the mm. ability to, to direct our own lives. Um, and so I think that this is essentially a, a neo-enlightenment that we are going through and that Bitcoin is the most fundamental form of truth that essentially allows for us to start building an ontological relationship with the truth, which coming from modernity is something that we've never actually been exposed to or held as a sacrosanct or a sacred object. Mm. So almost perhaps by taking away the freedom to print money, which Bitcoin promises to, to do in the long run, it's actually giving man the greatest freedom in a way. There's kind of a, there's a paradox in the discipline Bitcoin exerts on us. Is that, mm -hmm. is that, and that that's the, you, you, I think a bit, and I think it, it's the sort of, it's through our ability to tell that truth and the way that that truth interacts on us, that we start to build the courage to be able to stand up and speak our truth in such a way. And this actually relates back to, uh, an idea that Foucault was exploring a lot more at the end of his life uh, that Aristotle put out is called Parasoa. Mm. And it's the idea, it was the classic Greek idea that to speak your truth frankly and radically was like the most powerful ethical action that you could have. Mm. And I think that's where we're, we're going to and we're returning to. And that through us answering this question of what is to be enlightened it is to speak your truth courageously mm. and i think that is exactly what you and i and many other bitcoiners are doing and as we all start to get synchronized in our marching orders this eventually manifests itself into the political where man takes the agency upon himself once again to free himself from the shackles of statism and to open himself up to the radical individuality that the internet can now allow for us to create together. I don't know what that new structure looks like, but it's going to be very different and wild compared to what we've seen from before. I think it's brilliantly said and a great place to put a button on it. Eric, man, 
I have to thank you for your writing. Uh, you got a way with the pen and a way with words. And I like how you branch out into a lot of different philosophical rabbit holes that lead me running down uh, my own rabbit holes. So keep doing what you're doing. Bitcoin is fortunate to have you. Um, could you please tell my audience where they can find you and your work? Yeah, if you want to listen to me yell at people on Twitter, you can find me under my name. It's just Eric Kaysen. Uh, and if you'd like to check out my essays and other work, you can find those hosted on Crypto Sovereignty. Uh, Robert and I have appeared on a number of John's uh, Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcasts where we we hang out with him and, and John and Hoddle and have a great time. Uh, and if you have any feedback for me on this episode or other ones, please feel free to shoot me a DM on Twitter. I'm always interested to, to hear commentary on uh, my thoughts, whether they're good or bad. And also, thank you very much for having me on your show, Robert, and uh, for all of the great content that you've put out there. You know, I know many people feel uh, very thankful towards you for their understanding of Bitcoin through your work. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, and I will continue to do that. Um... And we'll do this again. I want to read the other essay that I was supposed to read and we'll have you back on. And maybe we'll just put this into one big, pretty episode. Uh, 